This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Place to be, nah, dude, come over here, this where it's at. Yo, 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 place to be is on my side, dude, because you don't want to be the target when I fly the coop. Nah, place to be is on my side, dude, because you don't want to be the target when I fly the coop. Buenos dias. Man, man, man. We call it the, uh, the place to be. Place to be. Then I shall be. It is contagious. It is the place to be. And we are live each and every Monday. To do, to, to do worse than Josh Richard. Place to Be Nation proudly presents a powerful pair of pro wrestling pundits. It's JT Rosero and Scott Criscolo. And this is the Place to Be Podcast. And when there's hope, my man. Speech. First of all, I want to thank my connect. The most important person with all due respect. Thanks to the duffel bag, the brown paper bag, the Nike shoe box for holding all this cash. Okay. Boys in blue who agree before the badge. Okay. The first Bush who ever made the stash. Okay. The rock boys in the building tonight. Hey. Oh, what a feeling I'm feeling like. Hey. Thanks to the lanes. Bad aim. Thanks to a little change. I told you off the game. Bullet Nation. Welcome back to the one and only Place Podcast. I am your co-host, Justice Eric, with you live here on this Monday evening alongside my PIC, Mr. Scott Criscola. Scott, how are you? Good evening, JR. Hello, Place to Be Nation and the PTB Wrestling Network. Welcome to episode... 610. Mm. The longest running episodic with a fucking gold standard. 90. I have to do it, <laughs> 90 to 7 bills. <laughs> I'm hoping to be retired by the time we get to 700. Yeah, I, I, I've got to agree with you. I think we should hit a cruise. I think we should do our own Caribbean cruise by then. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, what's going on? How are you, sir? Uh, Not too bad. Uh, that's it. Summer's behind us already. It's kind of crazy. I know. Think about. Uh, but here we are entering the fall. It means football's back, which is exciting. Yes. My life is dominated by 10U girls softball, uh, which is uh, just taking over my schedule these days. So uh, at the field pretty much almost every night, but that's OK. And I uh, had a visit from the one and only Mr. Chad Campbell recently. You did. Fun. And I learned more about college football and Disney cruises than anyone needs to know. But I, I loved every minute of it. We had a really good time. Um, good. It was always good to see him. So it was a lot of fun. Yes, of course. Absolutely. I like this guy. Uh, that we have on this evening to join, to conclude our triad. Who do we got tonight? He's okay. Uh, you hear him on a lot of shows <laughs> across all of our network programming. He has been on A Place to Be podcast before, but it was, I think, just part of the Christmas play. I don't know, maybe a trivia contest here or there. But this is his very first uh, appearance on a vintage vault, which is crazy because he's been around forever. Uh, mm-hmm. He was actually supposed to appear on an earlier episode, had to reboot that. Uh, but he is finally debuting here tonight, and that is Mr. Scott Shiflett. Scott, how are you? What's up, Scott? Hey guys, I'm glad to be here. It's like a dream come true. I remember when I moved to Nashville, that's when I started listening to the podcast and it got me through many 60 hour work weeks. So thank you Oof. guys. Well, we're here for you. Um, always makes me feel good when people say we got them through tough times. Because yes. We actually hear it probably more than anything else. That it's, I know it's not happy uh, times. It's usually miserable times. Yeah, it's okay. You know, yeah. if we got people through some shit weeks and through yeah. hospital stays and this and that, uh, yeah. you know, it makes it all worthwhile. For sure. Uh, I was going to name the shows you do, Scott, but I've lost track. Honestly, I think you have as many as me at this point. So I wasn't even going to try. I, know. Uh, nah. I do know that you are on the uh, seven months of danger, though, over the North South Connection. So be sure to check that out. Uh, we'll get more to that in a little bit. But you are covering uh, along with the the host of other the crew there uh, covering the Dangerous Alliance. So it's a lot of fun. 
Yes. Yeah, it really is. Uh, going back to that um, place and time, which seems to be sort of forgotten, it is a lot of fun. Too many Firebreaker chip, or chip the Firebreaker, as we call it. <laughs> yes, he's, <laughs> he's prevalent in 1991 WCW, for sure. Oh, yeah. uh, all right, uh, so it is Vintage Vault time, of course. As always, here on the Play Speed podcast, we'll be uh, heading to the summer of 2008. But before we do that, we head back to our classic nostalgia section of the podcast to kick things off we're going to go back to our vintage house show report scott this is going to tell us uh, scott criscolo i should say i'm going to have to use uh last names i guess tonight but uh mr Crispolo, tell us about what was going on this week on the house show circuit in 1994 yes very nice uh all right so uh wwf did not have a house show uh on this night july 20th 1994 however two days later uh, was a very important moment in the history of not only uh, the World Wrestling Federation proper, but of the McMahon family. For on July 22nd, 1994, Mr. Vincent Kennedy McMahon was acquitted of all mm. charges in the uh, steroid trials. Slash I would say that was off. probably an up- upset, I would think, right? I, I mean, I, I wasn't oh, he was, too he was going at to the, the time, but yeah, it seemed yeah, like, no, he, he, was it going seemed like he really dodged a bullet. Yeah. I mean, there was all talk all over magazines that it was all going to be Jerry Jarrett calling the shots. And, right. you know, it was going to be Jeff Jarrett winning the world title from Brett at the cage. And the, no, <laughs> I don't know if that was ever going to happen. But um, but, yeah, no, it was not. It, it didn't look good. I think I think what kill I mean, from what I've read now over time and, and obviously both you guys know as well, uh, Nail's testimony pretty much sunk the prosecution because it was fucking lying crap and Hogan was very apparently 50 50 in his in his uh uh testimony so that that's what I've read over the years that that kind of they pretty much threw Zahorian under the bus mm-hmm. and Vince was kind of like it's kind of how it went out at the end it seemed like that anyway from the stuff I used to read that's yep. Zahorian well, we'll probably get more on it in a little bit, I would think. Uh, yes, I'm notes, sure that. But... Uh, yes. I... So anyway, on that. So two days after this day, July 22nd, 1994, Vince was acquitted. WCW uh, was overseas. Uh, they were I mean, they weren't part of it a ton, but there were some WCW uh, stars at this new Japan show in Suwa, Japan, S-U-W-A, mm. Suwa, Japan, uh, July 20th, 1994. All right, here's your card. All right. Chad, I know you're going to grade me. Do the best I can. Tadao Yasuda and Manabu Nakanishi defeated uh, Tasuhito Takaiwa and Tokimitsu Ishizawa. Some of the distant play-by-play uh, of ECW events that featured Michinoku Pro Stars. <laughs> yeah. uh, my advice to you is to, like you just did, take a minute and read it and then pronounce it. And yeah. don't worry about the pause or going slow. It's more important to get it right. <laughs> it took me yeah. a little bit of work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Black Cat and American Love Machine mm. defeated Yuji Nagata and Osamu Kido. Two Cold Scorpio and Black Tiger defeated Shinjiro Otani and El Samurai. Jushin Liger, Riger, Jushin Riger, uh, I, almost said, I almost said Liger, Jushin Riger, not Liger, and Kensuke Sasaki defeated Norio Hanaga and Hiro Saito. The Nasty Boys defeated Akira Nagami and Takayuki Izuka. Uh, Tatsumi Fujinami, we know that name easily, defeated mm-hmm. Akitoshi Saito. Yoshiaki Fujiwara defeated Tatsu, Tatsutoshi Goto. Shinya Hashimoto, he was a stud in that time, 
uh, defeated Mikiyoshi Ohara. And in the, I, I'm guessing this was the main, yeah, this had to be the main event. Uh, Kuniaki Kobayashi, Shiro Koshinaka, and the Great Kabuki. Jesus, Great Kabuki. What was he, fucking 55 at this point? <laughs> God, yeah. Jesus Christ. Well, Defeat. I mean, it was, this was like not long after Royal Rumble appeared, so yeah. That is true. Yeah, that is true. Uh, this is a pretty stud six-man, though. Masachono, Muda, and Hiroshi Hase. That's a pretty stud six-man team right there. So that was the main event. So that was, so really, it was kind of like a, it was, it was on the history of WWE.com, but this was more of a New Japan show with like three WCW guys in it more than anything else. So anyway, uh, I know at this time I'm kind of reading uh, the book Nitro right now and, mm-hmm. and the author, I think it's Guy Evans. Is that his name? Um, Guy Evans. Talk- Guy Evans. Guy Evans. Yeah, that might be Guy. I don't know. But I, like, yeah, I, I prefer Guy as a pretty I, I prefer Guy as well. I'm going to call him Guy. Uh, Guy Evans uh, was talking about how Bischoff at this time was trying to um, uh, fix the fracture of the business relationship between WCW and New Japan because apparently uh, Jim Hurd and Ole and all these and Watts and all those fucking guys like totally stiffed New Japan all throughout the early 90s. New Japan would give them tons of cash and WCW would never send guys over for their shows. <laughs> so sound, sounds par for the course. It sounds like at that point with those guys in the early 90s. So. Bischoff and um, and his boy uh, Sonny Ono were trying to uh, f- uh, repair that relationship. So it was about this time, 94, 95. So. Uh, that's it for uh, house show stuff on this episode. So speaking of uh, the summer and, and uh, firing it up, what do we have, uh, JR, tonight for some herb? American Love Machine was Shiflet's name when we did karaoke in Nashville, by the way. That's right. Yep. All right, we have uh, just two herb batches of herb for you, Schiff. Uh, sorry, we don't have more, but it looks like he was working the uh, Triple H schedule here and doesn't work Tuesdays <laughs> in December 94. That's right. Uh, but here we go from July 8th, 1994. Uh, kind of a sad start. As already reported in the net, there are sketchy reports that WF referee Joey Morella, Gorilla Monsoon's son, was killed a few days ago in a car accident, resulted from him falling asleep at the wheel. Manager Harvey Whippleman was also injured in the crash and was expected to recover. I remember that at the time. Uh, it was kind of sad because, I mean, you don't think of much about referees all the time, but especially right. in that era, they were so prevalent. Like, they'd say the names a lot. You just knew them all. And he was just around forever. So all of a sudden, he mm. was on. And I remember they they didn't announce it until, like, August because they had pre-taped so much with him in it. And they wanted to wait until they had showed everything they were going to show match-wise. And then right. they announced that he passed away. So it wasn't until, like, they exhausted all the taped matches with him. Uh, it's been said that Gorilla was like never really the same uh, after that. And I, I think you could probably see the on-screen shift in his personality, too, around that time. Like, he was probably done with the product as it was, but I'm sure he never quite uh, recovered, as you would assume most wouldn't, when something like that mm-hmm. happens. Uh, so definitely a sad little story that's kind of forgotten a time here in the, the summer of 94. Right. But, uh, Schiff, yeah. I remember this before your time, but uh, were you aware of this one? Um, I mean, I was, I was five at the time, so like I didn't really know any of the rest, but like looking back, like it's very sad. And I, I think um, even around that time, they said it was like the curse of like July 4th, because that's when um, Brutus got hurt a couple years mm-hmm. earlier. And I, I believe like, I want to, Adrian, Adonis? Adrian Adonis. Yeah, I think it yeah. was. I think it so, was like, yep. it was, it was yep. just like a curse. Of, but also it speaks to the time. Like these guys were putting in like 20 hour days and mm-hmm. I, I've seen Harvey Whippleman like comment about it. And it's just heartbreaking because Harvey had a, um, his seatbelt on and Joey didn't. So, right. And when we talked to Harvey on this show, like God, Scott, well, a decade ago, probably not at this point. Yeah. I think it was like 2012. We had him on, uh, he gave us a two part interview that, and, and you're right, Scott, uh, Schiff, it was uh, very, very emotional. He got 
really choked up talking about it, that accident. Yep. And I'm sure he had some survivor's guilt, I think, uh, to go along with it. So uh, sad stuff. And, and again, that's in our archives if you want to dig back. If you're newer to the show and never heard it, it was a really good interview. Uh, talked a lot about different territory stuff and his the job he worked backstage, even you know after being a manager. He was around forever. It was like a, almost like um, – I guess like a production assistant, right? He used to like run and pick guys mm. up, driver, he'd go get props. Like he kind of was a jack of all trades backstage. So he has some interesting uh, takes. Tiger Jeet Singh is in trouble with the law facing fraud, conspiracy charge or connection with real estate in Edmonton. The RCMP has issued a warrant for his arrest when it became clear he had left Canada. Singh lives in Milton, Ontario, and had a reasonably high profile in Toronto Sikh community. He's even named as Milton's and Brampton's unofficial business ambassador. The Toronto Star's lengthy report of the story filled with lots of great facts about Singh's wrestling career. Some direct quotes known as Tiger Jeet Singh to adoring Matt fans in Japan and elsewhere. 49 holds the Universal Wrestling Association title belt and earned... $60,000 per match while in Japan. Don't believe everything you read, says her. The Vince McMahon trial began on Tuesday. Jury selection and other mundane stuff will fill the first few days. Trial is expected to run five weeks, and the fur won't begin to fly until testimony begins. Expect Hulk Hogan will be a key witness for prosecution, which should be one of the more interesting parts of the proceedings. Reports are Vince McMahon framed O.J. Simpson to take the heat on himself for most assuredly false. Jim Ross has returned to the commentating fold for a two-month stretch, since the UF is certainly putting up the front that they expect Vince to get off. Scratch Sid Vicious and David Boy Smith from returning to the DF list. Smith may well work some European dates. That leaves the list of newcomers, in quotes, being Sergeant Slaughter, Greg Valentine, Lanny Poffo, Coco Beware, Damian Demento, King Kong Bundy, and Mike Sharp. And I believe Bundy is the only one that actually shows up of this group that uh, Herb is touting here. I don't think any of the other guys come back. WCW's Clash of Champions 17 on June 23rd drew a 3.0 rating. Built continually throughout the show, peaked at 4.2 for the main event. Despite the mixed reaction of Hulk Hogan live, the ratings do indicate people were interested in seeing the main event on the show. Hogan did get cheers for his run-in, but went back to a mixed reaction for the interview. I'm sure the bash buy rate will be analyzed to death. This weekend, Saturday night will be broadcast live. They're plugging this as the first ever interactive wrestling show where fans can call the hotline to pick wrestlers that will meet in the main event. They'll have wrestlers in the red and blue locker room. Fans can uh, be able to pick who they want for each locker room. If it's legit, we can ensure that a Sting versus Flair rematch, uh, or at least every match has a heel versus face. Of course, Hulk Hogan will appear and probably confront Flair. Great American Bash, still still has it a Great American Bash, not Bash on the Beach yet, from July 17th in Orlando. Flair versus Hogan, Cactus and Sullivan versus Orndorff and Roma for the WCW tag titles, Austin versus Steamboat for the U.S. title, Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Buck against Rhodes and Anderson, Vader versus Guardian Angel, and rumored are Sting versus Stephen Regal for the TV title, and Zabisco versus Paul Levesque, or that may be. Shaquille O'Neal hmm. and George Foreman have already had spots run to plug Hulk Hogan. Both men and Mr. T are expected to be in attendance at the pay-per-view. Shaq will present the title belt to the winner of the main event. Everyone is calling in markers to stack the audience with more celebrities than ever. Many ringside seats are blocked off for this purpose. Antonio Noki and a squad of Japanese fans will also be in attendance. Absolutely everyone seems to be guessing that Hulk Hogan will win the title. Clash of the Champions goes down August 26th. SummerSlam on August 29th. Bret Hart versus Owen Hart in a cage. Undertaker versus Undertaker. And Tatanka versus Lex Luger. Fall Brawl on 994 tentatively has Terry Funk, Bunkhouse Buck, Arn Anderson, and Ming versus Dusty Rhodes, Dustin Rhodes, and the Nasty Boys in war games uh shif any thought on any of those notes before we move to the second batch um those guys coming in for wwf sound mm-hmm. like uh they were gonna main event the uh american wrestling federation <laughs> yes, yes, which i had exactly to watch that. 
once. Um, I mean, he's just all over the place, sort of. But I remember that clash. Uh, that was when um, Sting lost the belts to be unified. So that was that's the, when Sting starts getting like pushed down the card for WCW mm-hmm. when Hogan comes in. I mean, look, he's challenging for the TV title. Like, yep. what is this, 1988? Does he even? Because this is what I don't think he's even on that show. I don't think that's a match. I'm pretty sure he's no. not. He doesn't wrestle because he's yeah, in the tux. Him. Doesn't he like sit at ringside or something for the? Main yeah, match? they keep him away. Uh, yeah. So he, like the rumor was not to steal, you know, Hogan's Thunder, which would make sense because you know Sting was quote unquote, like was known as the franchise of WCW during right. the whole time, so it makes sense. I mean, I was a WCW fan, and I remember being pissed off at five years old that Hogan was coming in and Sting wasn't like you know going to be world champion anymore. So. And I was at five. I was five. Imagine like, you know, these mm-hmm. other hicks. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, what do you think? Any uh, comments on the notes? Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty customary stuff. I just did some research for those that are interested in uh, listening to the Bruno Lauer interview. Jr. and I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was episodes. Part one was one fifty four, and part two was one fifty eight. Uh, part one. You ready for this date? You're pretty. You were pretty close, Jr. When you said what you said. <laughs> August 23rd, 2012 yep. was part one. And September 6th. God, almost 10 years ago to the day that we're recording. Pretty that. much. It's <laughs> September 6th, 2012 was part two. It's wild. So in the archive, go to our site, placetobeat.podbean.com. Just type Bruno Lauer mm-hmm. in the search, and, they, and they're the two things that pop right up. So they were he was really super great. nice, too, because he did the first part. And he's like, I got to get my wife to the airport. He's like, but I'll come back on in a couple of weeks if you want to do more. We're like, yeah, sure. So. Uh, Absolutely. He, he gave a very exhaustive interview. Like we we covered the gamut, and he was he couldn't have been a nicer guy. Yeah. So yeah, so definitely check it out. Place to be Just type Bruno Lauer in the uh, search, and it'll pop up. All right. Let's move ahead to July fourteenth, nineteen ninety four. The Observer reported a bit on the first days of the McMahon trial. Among the most interesting bits are the defense claimed that McMahon never told anyone to use steroids. Prosecution claimed that Rick Rude would testify that when he was headlining against Ultimate Warrior, McMahon told him he better get back on the juice. Rude and his wife were trying to have a child at the time, so he had stopped using steroids. The defense is trying to make the case that they couldn't help it if their employees were using steroids. They didn't support it and didn't demand it, and they have had testing for a while. Prosecution has yet to point out the fact that most new hires during the 80s were hired because they had a look. Dirty F wants to establish that they gained nothing financially from their employees using steroids. This is thought-provoking. The defense tried to paint Vince supplying Hogan with steroids as one friend sharing an experience with another, ignoring that there were legalities involved. In an attempt to discredit the star witness of the prosecution, the defense mentioned Hulk Hogan lying on Arsenio Hall and elsewhere about a steroid use over the years. Instead of the strong words that WF employees have paid this action, the defense pointed out that Hogan probably had to lie to protect his livelihood from a media-feeding frenzy. This leads credence to the rumors that Hogan was told to lie, although he admittedly could have done whatever he wanted once he got on the show. There was a usual confusion about steroid use being legal during the time in question. Dr. Zahorian was mentioned with the prosecution reminding us that he's a convicted drug dealer who was quite happily using, used by of Stars with full company support. The defense saying that if they were going to do it anyhow, it better be a doctor who would supply guys than a black market dealer. Zahorian's defense took the same approach and failed miserably. The defense also completely exposed pro wrestling, supplying details of how matches are set up, worked, and pointing out that pro wrestling is not a competitive sport. Randy Cully, who was Moondog Rex, Tom Zank, Terry Zapinski, the Warlord, and Tully Blanchard all testified. Cully talked about the availability of steroids since the Horian and his use. The deference argued that his use of steroids had nothing to do with his position in the company or his success, and that Vince actually wanted him to get smaller to be a member of Demolition for a very short run. The prosecution pointed out that smaller meant losing mass and gaining muscle, and Cully did so by using steroids. 
Zenk testified he'd last used steroids three weeks ago. He had to fly in between bookings at an All Japan tour. He said if Brass told him Zahorian had anything he might need or want. He said Vince never told him to use steroids, but admitted he first used them in 1981. The point being that Vince would hardly have to tell anyone who was a dedicated user or anything. He was a hostile witness. Warlord testified he never used steroids in life. Okay, only joking. But he admitted injecting other wrestlers and flushing the needles. Upon his arrival under the F, he was also by referee Dave Hepner. This is a Horian had anything he wanted. He said he was told when Vince got word about Zahorian, he told the wrestlers to never travel with steroids. He also said he was told to stop using steroids after the Zahorian trial, and he complied. He also admitted to being on 18 months probation for steroid possession charge. Blanchard admitted that he had used steroids and that he knew Zahorian before even working for the WF. He says steroid use is the same in NWA and WF in his prime. Uh, Scott, any, any comments on all those news and notes there for the trial? Tom Zink. Um, oh, sorry. Oh. No, sorry, you first. Uh, Tom Zink being a hostile witness really makes me laugh. <laughs> like, were they like calling him a quitter? So like, <laughs> it just uh, the all of it just sounds. I, I wish like court court TV could have broadcast this because it. I think we would have spent years watching this. It would have been amazing. Mm. I think uh, Rick Martel should have got up in the back and said, "Don't listen to him. He's a loser, <laughs> just like that Tito guy." Um, it, uh, it it definitely would have been I mean, crazy TV and and Twitter stuff, Jeff. <laughs> this is like live today. Imagine following this on Twitter would be nuts. Um, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It would have been fucking ridiculous. Um, it's you can even tell just based on on what he's on what uh, Herb's saying that just everything seemed very vague. Everything was vague. Yeah, we could get it from that guy. Yeah, he said we can get it. Yeah, some of us had to take it. Yeah, like everything just seemed so vague. Um, I don't know how the prosecution was going to win anything just with the, the fact that really nobody said anything. They just spoke a lot of words. It's just what it mm-hmm. seemed like, at least early on. Everything was like, yeah, we, we were able to get roids. How? Well, we just went to him. And what did he do? Well, he gave us roids. Like it just right. everything was so vague. That I can imagine the defense is like, how the fuck are these guys going to win this with a bunch of heroes? Well, see, that, that's know? what happens when you work with a bunch of guys that are constantly kayfabe and everyone else, right? Like, they know how to, <laughs> yeah, they know how to be big and dense. And I yep. mean, we'll get to it, but I know Hogan ends up testifying, but he, I think he ends up helping Vince, right? Because he kind of says, like, he never made yeah. me do it. So, um, yeah. you know, I look, we all know Vince probably told him to do it, but we also all know they were apt to do it as well. So it's, it's definitely a yeah. gray area. I mean, he probably should have done some time given the rules at the time, but I also see a world where, yeah, I mean, these guys all also had the choice and decided to do many of them before they arrived. But there are others that did feel the pressure and did it after. So, I mean, I think Tully's uh, testimony was quite damaging as well with them saying, mm-hmm. yeah, I did it in the NWA. So it's like, well, Vince doesn't own the NWA. Like, you right. know, so it's like, we're like you said, we're doing it everywhere. Like well, that's an uphill battle for Vince at that time, too, right? Because wrestling was WWF. Like, very few people knew to differentiate the two, right? It's just, and, and honestly, it was that way, right? Even through Benoit, like that ben, with the Benoit stuff. Like, it was always similar. Like, you just assume that Vince McMahon runs all wrestling, you know, and it's only WWE. So that was always an uphill battle for, for him. Sometimes it was good, right? Because they were synonymous with wrestling, but sometimes it was bad. When it's bad shit happening, everyone just assumes it's it's him and them. So. Mm. WCW ran their pre-pay-per-view angle this weekend on a live broadcast of Saturday night. They used a hotline gimmick where fans could call in and pick from amongst a few faces. 
and a few heels to determine a face versus heel matchup to be the show's main event. They shamelessly plugged the idea of having a Ric Flair Sting rematch, with that clearly being the planned match. All the faces were plugging the match like crazy, and all the heels were acting like they hated the idea. Flair did some good psychotic microphone work. Mr. T appeared on the show and announced that he would be a bash at the beach in support of Hulk Hogan. The Flair versus Sting match had a few occurrences that will impact the pay-per-view on Sunday. Sherry Martel was barred from the building to add on to the Flair Sting promotion. They went through the trouble of showing a skit where Sherry just dressed up like Fifi, Flair's maid on Flair for Gold from last year. Tried to get in the building. In the end, she ran out of the audience, dressed like a man, and saved Flair, who's in Sting Scorpion. She raked Sting's eyes, but never got back into the action. On a Sunday show, they mentioned that Sting had an eye injury as a result of the attack, and they'd have details next Saturday. When Hogan ran to the ring, his knee was clipped by Flair, and he sold it for the rest of the show. It seems quite likely to come into the bash with an injured knee. Everything to this point has pointed to a title change, but now it's a little fuzzy, in my opinion. WDF announced that Undertaker for Sunday took a match with SummerSlam this past weekend, very strange way. They led the fans to believe that Ted DiBiase's Undertaker was the original Undertaker. There were some subtle references to a new Undertaker being fake, like Paul Barrison gets spoken with his Undertaker, but it certainly hadn't established that there were two of them. Unfortunately, the magazine had already announced Undertaker versus Undertaker, and Domino's is serving pizza in a special box with the match on it, so WDF was probably pressed to announce it. It seems like Mark Calloway won't appear on camera until the pay-per-view, even though most of us expected a showdown angle to fuel the match and set the record straight. Todd Pettengill's announcement of the match played up that he has no idea how Undertaker could face Undertaker. This is a strange promotion for the WWF. There are frequent complaints about the tag team situation in both WCW and WWF, but have no fear. WWF is springing a new awesome duo upon us in Mabel and Typhoon, which I don't believe ever actually happens. What? Uh, maybe some house show stuff, but that would be quite oh the God. team. The local paper reports that Gorilla Monsoon's wife were establishing a scholarship fund in honor of their son, Joe, who was fatal uh, in a fatal car accident last week. Bull Nakano will debut in the WF on the 8-1 Raw. She will be managed by Luna Vachon, with the storyline being that Luna brought, in, uh, brought her in after her loss to Alundra Blaze. Bash of the Beach. There we go. We get the name finally a week out <laughs> on Sunday from Orlando. Flair versus Hogan. Jack and Sullivan versus Orndorff and Roma. Austin versus Steamboat. Funk and Buck versus Dustin and Arn, Vader versus Guardian Angel, Johnny B. Bad versus Steve Regal for the TV title, Zabisco versus Levesque. The TV title match had previously been announced as Sting versus Regal, but due to the eye injury suffered this past Saturday, word has it that the match will be changed to bad with a bandage thing at ringside. I suppose they want to do something like this to put heel heat on Flair and Sherry. Shaq, George Foreman, Mr. T, and others will appear at the pay-per-view. It's expected to be in Hogan's Corner. Uh, T is expected to be at Hogan's Corner. Shaq will present the title to the winner. Anoki and a squad of Japanese fans will be in attendance as well. Post-pay-per-view marriages have Flair versus Sting, Vader versus Angel, Steamboat versus Austin, Rhodes, Anderson, Bad, Regal, Orndorff and Roma versus Bagwell and Patriot, and Pillman versus Eaton. Clearly, Anderson will turn heel on Rhodes and come on side with Flair. Arn has talked about creating a new four horsemen, including himself, Flair, and Kurt Hennig. Clash of Champions on August 25th. SummerSlam, August 29th. Bret Hart versus Owen Hart, Taker, Taker. Tatanka Luger. The storyline leading to the final match above will tease a heel turn by Luger and uh, the same War Games match that we talked about in the last batch. Uh, any notes on this, uh, Schiff? No, just like <sighs> Sting just got the Shaft. I know we just said that, but like like they're basically writing him out and everything. And with Shaq, you know, being in Orlando at the time, he was a, a magic. Do you really think he's going to present the world title to Flair? I mean, yeah, this right. was choreographed like no other. Yeah. Scott, anything from you? Um, I'm wondering if this, and we'll talk more about it here as we move through the timeline, but, you know, there was a lot of scuttlebutt 
in what was it like late 95 early 96 that sting was coming to the wwf and now that you're thinking about it you know everyone's like yeah yeah whatever but eh, doesn't seem that now that we're really hearing this kind of stuff it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that 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 was discussed um throughout 1995 mm-hmm. based on how this started you know getting pushed out and shunted and you know this is hogan's company now kind of thing and so to, now that you think about it and and shifts points on that as well. It doesn't surprise me that those rumors a year from now, they might've started earlier, but I doubt it. Um, you know, had, had started to take shape because of the situation that was happening at that moment. So it doesn't surprise me at this point. It seemed very far fetched for many years, but now that we really sink our teeth into it, it does seem like the possibility was there that sting would have le- would have left if he kept getting disrespected, you know? Right. So that's what I got. All right. That'll do it for the Herb Notes. Uh, so with all that behind us and multiple takers and multiple celebrities and everything else, that'll wrap up our Vintage Corner. Now, I would assume, as they're in the courtroom, Vince would say to Hulk Hogan, you testified against me. You helped me out, though. Stay. I missed you. But it's too late. He had already signed with WCW, so he couldn't. <laughs> right. Also saying the words stay, I miss you, were Lisa Loeb, the number two song in the nation this week in 1994. Brings us to Scott Criscolo's Pop Culture Corner. Thank you, uh, JR. And uh, Vince was saying, I swear I miss you. Please come back. Uh, all for one. I didn't realize how long this song was fucking number one. I mean, it was mm-hmm. number one like literally Dominant. all summer. Yeah. Oh, Dominant. my God. Ate yeah, up the radio. Um, uh, yep. And so Lisa Loeb from the movie Reality Bites at number two. Number three, uh, Regulate. A lot of uh, soundtrack songs in 1994, of course, one of mm-hmm. them, our personal favorites, Regulate. From Warren G and Nate Dog, from Above the Rim, Anytime, Any Place, and On and On from Janet at four. Don't Turn Around by Ace of Base at five. Fantastic Voyage by Coolio at six. Can You Feel the Love Tonight from Elton John at seven, of course, from The Lion King. Back and Forth by Aliyah at number eight. Funka, Funkified by The Brat at number nine. And If You Go by John, John Sakata. Still around in 1994. Well, listen, uh, there is not a song that misses on that list. Uh, a ten spot of bangers up and down the board. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't realize John Sakata was still. I forgot he was around in 1994. Um, he's at number ten. So there's your, uh, there's your top ten for this week in 1994. Any thoughts, Shift? Uh, I'd only heard about like five or six of those songs, but uh, those five or six were all bangers. So um, yeah, you should I, you should get the list, Shift, and listen to all ten tonight. John's, I will. Yeah. John Sakata sounds like an NXT name, so I, I was unsure if that was a real name or not. <laughs> yes. He yeah, sounds he like somebody who worked AEW Dark. Yeah. John Sakata. John Sakata. Didn't join the Dark Order. Um, all right, so let's take a look at the, uh, from the radio to the theater. Let's take a look at the top movies uh, this weekend in 1994. At number 10, The Shadow. It was a fun little movie with Alex Baldwin based on a comic uh, book uh, character. 
Uh, I Love Trouble at number nine. North debuted at number eight. Another debut, Lassie at number yeah. seven. I didn't realize Lassie did it. <laughs> God, where was I for that? I don't remember right. that being a re 1984. Lassie? Really? Uh, Speed at number six. We talked about that one. Angels in the Outfield at number five. That's the one, right? Wasn't uh, Danny Glover, right? Wasn't he the manager of the Angels? I think that's what mm-hmm. that was. And they all were like, yeah, I forgot. Like, Christopher yeah, Lloyd was the Angel, right? Yeah, he was the Angel. And um, Joseph Gordon Levitt. Yeah, so Joseph, I, couldn't, I was going to say Thomas E. Nicholas, but that's rookie of the year. Uh, yeah, Joseph, Joseph Gordon Levitt is the kid, the main kid. Yes. Yep. Uh, at number four, yeah. At number four, speaking of the Lion King, three weeks on the chart and already making uh, amazing money. Mm-hmm. Number three, a great John Grisham classic, The Client. Good, good movie. At number three, these top two though are speaking of bangers. These are absolute bangers. At number two, in my opinion, and it's very hard to find right now. I don't think I don't even think it's even out. It's ever even been out on Blu-ray. Arguably one of the most unheralded. Um, Arnold movies of all time, and that is True Lies. Hmm. Tremendous, tremendous Arnold movie with with Jamie Lee Curtis. Very uh, low flow, great. It's not the Tuma. It's not the Tuma. Well, that's kindergarten. That was a few years earlier. Kindergarten Cop. Yes. Another great movie, by the way. Mm-hmm. Arnold was hot pretty much throughout. I mean, pretty much from the Terminator. I don't know till maybe <laughs> what's that shitty movie he pimped on a. SmackDown and ni- End of Days. Yes. <laughs> Crappy yep. movie uh, pimped on SmackDown in 99. <laughs> About till he hit that point. He was pretty much hot. Like, there wasn't really a bad Arnold movie for a while. And this was one of them, True Lies. And number one this weekend, uh, definitely one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, it continued the epic early 90s run of Tom Hanks. I am, of course, talking about Life is Like a Box of Chocolates. Mm. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Uh, tremendous movie. Great soundtrack, too. So there's your movies for this week back in 1994. Schiff, any thoughts on those? I know you were five, but anything you liked down the line? Yeah, I, I love uh, Lion King, of course. Uh, True Lies, I enjoy as well. Um, um, Angels in the Outfield, like Justin said, is a classic. Uh, my favorite line in that is when uh, they're playing baseball and Danny Glover tells the kid to run home and the kid actually takes off and runs home. <laughs> yes. It's yes. Like just it's one of those things that's like stuck in my brain. And um, Forrest Gump has to be the most quotable movie of all time, right? Like it's uh, it's up there. Yeah. Like like yep. my favorite one is like he got a daddy named Forrest, too. I don't know why it always makes me laugh. <laughs> yes. Mm. Exactly. But also a tremendous soundtrack, too. Absolutely. I would argue um, Semi-Pro is more quotable, but it's up there. Yeah. I agree with both. Super bad different as well, at least for me, personally. Yeah. I mean, all different kinds of movies, but yeah, definitely. All right. Let us go now to uh, the um, the Diamond for a little baseball. Of course, uh, as we all know, we're, the clock is ticking. In the Mm -hmm. summer of 1994, we were getting very close to not having any more season. But there were games on this day, July 20th, 1994. Let's look. We all know who our teams are. Let's see. The Mets beat the Dodgers. Oh, Brett Saberhagen was 11-4. and That's crazy. Uh, Yankees beat the A's out in Oakland 1-0. And Schiff, your Braves lost in Pittsburgh uh, 5-4 to the Pirates. Standings at this moment, uh, the Yankees were leading the East by 2.5 over the, the Orioles. Uh, the White Sox were up two 
on uh, Cleveland in the Central. Texas, this is weird, guys. I got a question for you here. Texas leads the uh, the West by five over Cal over the Angels and the A's, but still at this point in the season, all four teams were under 500. Texas was in first place with a record of 46 and 48. Could it have been feasible if this season ran the course that all four teams could have possibly been under 500? No, I feel like they would have gotten over because they would have had to play each other a bunch more at some point. I would think so. Yeah, uh, I would think one of them probably gets at least like just over, maybe like 83 or 84 wins or something. Yeah, probably. But it was bad at this point. 46 and 48 for Texas. The Angels were 40, 42 and 54. Oakland was 41 and 53. And Seattle was 38 and 54. So that's pretty rough. Um, in the NL East, the Braves and Expos were tied for first uh, battling. Uh, Cincinnati led the Central by two and a half over Houston. And in the West, the Dodgers had a three-game lead over Colorado. So the clock was still ticking on uh, Major League Baseball at this point in late July. Uh, and that is it. Uh, a very brisk uh, pop culture corner. JR, back to you. All right. Before we head back to the future, let's head to the present. If that makes sense. So you time travelers, I don't know. But quickly talk about what we have going on here in our family of podcast networks over the North-South Connection. Have content coming at you each and every day. Uh, a lot of it's evergreen. If you're into nerd wrestling shit, this is the network for you. We have a podcast that breaks down every single Royal Rumble appearance by every single entrant ever. We have, uh, you know, list-based projects. We have chronological projects covering all kinds of different time periods of wrestling history. We also touch on some current stuff. We have a podcast specializes in AEW every other Friday. We have a podcast that specializes on WWE and the independents. We also break down every you know, premium live event and AEW pay-per-view within hours of it. Uh, wrapping up, we have a podcast out touching on the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, just all kinds of super good content that we are really proud of. So check it out, North-South Connection. Subscribe today and share it with a friend. Uh, Scott Shifflett, what do you got going on? Uh, yeah, on this feed, you can hear me on Crock and Roll. We're in um, June of 1986 now. I... Um, I'm enjoying that very much. Uh, YouTube Roulette, which uh, it's like Mystery Science Theater 3000 with us watching that. Um, sometimes I show up on um, Highway to the Impact Zone. That's a lot of fun. And as you said, JT, on the No-So feed, I am um, one of the many on the Seven Months of Danger podcast, which is rocking and rolling. And I can be found on Twitter at Scott underscore Shifflet. Scott, then you want to hit? Shift. Schiff, you're everywhere, and uh, you're pretty good everywhere. So keep up the good work everywhere. Uh, everything great here over on the uh, PTB Wrestling Network, the Reliable. We have all of your great shows, uh, including the show Schiff talked about, Highway to the Impact Zone, NWA, Crock and Roll. Uh, new, of course, all our other great shows through the Looking Glass, P- Place to be Nation's main event, entering season three, the way that we do seasons, season three. Uh, and, of course, I would definitely like to welcome uh, the newest member of the uh, PTB Wrestling Network family, and that is our friend, another group of guys from across the pond, the Memphis Continental Wrestling Cast. Uh, they, they, we had been putting down their, uh, putting out their back episodes, kind of like mm-hmm. a soft launch to get the episodes into the uh, archive, and then they just debuted their the official launch here on the network was this past uh, was this past Saturday. So, Luke and the guys, welcome. Uh, to the Memphis Continental Wrestling Cast and to the PTB Wrestling Network. Uh, that show will be will not be week will not be daily. I know it seemed like daily, but that was just the back episodes. They will be 
uh, weekly on Saturdays. And then, of course, they have another show called uh, Time Warp. Uh, mm-hmm. That will be the that'll be the first Sunday of the month. Okay. So check check all that great stuff out. So welcome, guys. It's an honor to have you here uh, on the PTB Wrestling Network. Uh, another guy we were happy to have back is Rory McNamara. He survived mm-hmm. his uh, he survived his trip with uh, Callum and uh, Ben out to uh, Clash at the Castle, and uh, Callum didn't burn the castle down after his boy didn't win. But uh, Rory is back after his uh, paternity hiatus. And Senior Video will make its return. He does a quick little pod blast uh, last week, but starting in October, he'll be back with his full shows. That drops the first Monday uh, of the month. So a lot of great stuff, always and everywhere. We we much more classic stuff here. I feel mm-hmm. like I've noticed this a lot, Jr. And this is fantastic. I feel like the PTB Wrestling Network and the No So kind of are working different timelines, so we're covering mm-hmm. everything from the '80s. Like we're doing '80s, early '90s. You're doing mid '90s into the 2000s. Like we're covering everything. You really don't have to listen anywhere else except to the PTB Wrestling Network and the No So for all of your classic WWF or Crockett or WCW or uh, NWA or or uh, uh, AEW current stuff. All your great needs. So, and of course, can't forget our other great feeds: the Jenny Position, which drops stuff every Wednesday, and uh, the PTB Pop Experience with Andy Atherton and everybody over there. The uh, constant daily, uh, your daily uh, uh, video, uh, video playbacks and all the great fun. So the quad of pods, uh, you can't get any, you don't have to go anywhere for anything else. Everything here is covered. So that is it. Nowhere to go, but up. Just like the one Billy gun. We've got it all. All right. Let's go ahead now and jump back in the DeLorean. We're going to head over to Great American Bash 2008. Live July 20th, 2008, from the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. Attendance 12,454, 196,000 buys. Uh, Scott, were you with me at Picasso for this one? Because this feels like it would have been like St. Mary's weekend. Oh, wait. Yeah, I, de- I definitely remember. I definitely remember this because um, I remember the Triple H Edge main event. And was this the pay-per-view with the... The dude with the uh, the Cena guy with the fucking sure. he was at everyone sure. Ski, so. uh, jersey. Then it was crazy Undertaker lady. She wasn't there, even though Taker wasn't there. But uh, yeah, no, I, I feel like I was. I feel like this was a Picasso show. This is yeah. probably the one I pissed off my yeah, brand new wife by uh, leaving her. Yeah, because you know we we had the perfect seating in our yard for the fireworks for the festival. We would do the yeah. party on the Saturday, and often. Folks that come over Sunday as well to watch the fireworks right. and some leftovers. Yep. There was definitely one year we went to go watch a pay per view Picasso's and she got yeah. flooded with like twenty people who came over the house to watch the fireworks. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm like, yep, I'm going to bed. See ya. That might have, <laughs> yeah, been, might have been one of them. <laughs> All right, yeah, this is the, this is the fifth and last edition of the Great American Bash. It'll be rebranded simply as the Bash the following year. Great American Bash will not be used again until 2020. This is New York's 22nd pay-per-view, pulling them back ahead of California for first all-time, the third all-time in the city of Uniondale. The most recent had been SummerSlam 02. The final pay-per-view to be rated TV 14. This would end the ruthless aggression era, which had begun in the spring of 20 uh, 2002. So That's crazy. I know it's like the PG era. You always think of a little bit later, but I guess ostensibly kind of starts now. 
which is funny because the next few shows have stuff that we could qualify as not PG. So I guess we know when Jake's podcast is going to end. This random yep, right here. Great so American Samuel, Pretty much. Yep. There you go. That's the goal. <laughs> uh, beginning on June 30th, Raw, Shane and Stephen McMahon returns to TV to address their father's status. Also serving as temporary GMs. If you recall, he was crushed by the uh, destruction of the set during the million dollar yes. giveaway. Uh, beginning on July 2nd, Raw did a week-long tour of South and Central America. Trevor Murdoch was released on July 4th. Uh, so that brings it into Kate and Murdoch, which have been a, a pretty steady presence for us on the show since we rebooted the timeline. On July 8th, ECW, Teddy Long introduced Tiffany as the new assistant to general manager. And the next day, Ashley Mastero was released. I guess we can only have one one blonde uh, you know, girl kind of putting around the show at a time. So no more Tiffany. All right, our dark match featured Mr. Kennedy taking on Umaga. We then head inside the arena. We get a detailed opening video. Hits all the top matches. The wedding between Edge and Vicky Guerrero. Uh, we also saw CM Punk cashing his money in the bank. So a pretty busy few weeks here leading up to the show. Jim Ross and Mick Foley welcome us in, and we are ready to rock with our opening match, which is a four-way for the tag team titles. Uh, Miz and John Morrison versus the Edgeheads which are uh, Ryder and Hawkins versus Jesse and Festus versus Finley and Hornswoggle. Quite the mix here, Scott. How do we get to this point? Yes. Well, uh, let us dive in. My uh, my uh, window just closed here. But yeah, uh, Hornswoggle. I don't know why they just kept the Hornswoggle thing going. I just still find that, uh, I still find that incredibly perplexing. Let me just find our notes here let's see where are we where the heck did the notes go uh, ah there we go okay so uh we are in long island sorry just waiting for this to load uh i can fire oh. us up it's the official pay-per-view debut of jesse yeah. and festus jesse's portrayed by ray gordy jr the son of fabulous keyboard terry bam bam gordy and festus is portrayed by drew hankinson who we last saw as the fake Kane back in 06 the team was set to debut in late 07 as the dalton boys before being repackaged as jesse and festus they debuted early in 08 the gimmick was that festus was at a docile state until the bell rang when he became unhinged and he would return to the docile state with the bell rang again uh Schiff, i feel like that's jake on our trips uh the, the opening bell of the, the bar rings he uh gets out of his docile state fires up uh you ready scott or you want me to keep rolling here uh, you could do the next one. Go ahead. Okay. On the July 1st, ECW, Finley and Hornswoggle team with Matt Hardy to defeat Morrison, Miz, and Chavo Guerrero in a six-man tag. On the July 4th, SmackDown, Jesse and Festus, dressed up like Uncle Sam, defeated Hawkins and Ryder, only for Edge to assist Hawkins and Ryder in beating down Jesse and Festus with Edge hitting Festus in the head with a chair. Okay, I've got you. I'm good now. All right. Thank you for chitting. I appreciate it. No worries. On the 780, on the 780 CW, Morrison and Miz were cutting a promo till Finley interrupted and Hornswoggle sprayed both of them with a water gun and Finley would defeat Miz in a singles match. On the 711 SmackDown, Finley and Hornswoggle defeated Morrison and Miz in a non-title match. And later that night, Jesse and Festus defeated Hawkins and Ryder by countout, which led Festus to return to his docile state. Hawkins and Ryder would attack Jesse until the bell rang again and Festus would clear them from the wing. I always thought that gimmick was pretty cool, actually. I'm not mm-hmm. going to lie. Uh, it was different. Was it was definitely creative. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, this match was announced on the 718 SmackDown as Hawkins and Ryder would defeat Finley and Hornswoggle thanks to Edge, who had named himself the guest referee. And later in the night, Morrison and Miz defeated Jesse and Festus in a non-title match. So kind of the main players in the tag division on SmackDown. And they all meet here uh, for the gold. All right, well, let's dive right in. The champs are strutting out, continuing to refine their act. They're gelling as a team. Tough challenge ahead. The Edgeheads come out. They're starting to branch out on their own a little bit more. A decent pop for Jesse and Festus. 
And then, of course, Finley and Hornswoggle, uh, they've been making this gimmick work. And I, I feel like they've actually made Hornswoggle viable in this. Like, you would look at this on paper and think it's kind of stupid, maybe. But um, the, the way they presented Hornswoggle and the way he takes bumps and works, like, it's it's just another match. And I think it's a credit to them and the way they utilized him at times to, that it would be a believable situation. Uh, the bell rings. Everyone clears out. Festus goes fight mode. Champ shove Hornswoggle in. Uh, he's down to fight, but instead he hits a tope into the champs outside. Festus beats on Miz. He goes for early covers. We settle in. Jesse tags in and keeps the pressure on. Finley tags in, but he's a Festus kick. And that allows Miz to escape. Morrison comes in. He works some offense. Uh, you know, I think Foley does a nice job. He takes, talks the strategy of the match while also taking glass shots at Miz. Kind of busted his balls. Uh, JR gives Morrison some Rick Rude comps as the champs keep only tagging each other. They're smuggling, uh, smothering Finley. Finley comes back, but collides with Morrison. So Ryder tags himself in. The Edgeheads kind of quick tag. They get a heat segment. The Edgeheads, uh, you know, briefly lose control, but then regain it. They're grinding Finley. Hornswoggle gets a tag. He cuts through Hawkins, but Jesse tags himself in. Gets a flurry of offense on Hawkins, but can't finish him. Hawkins knocks Hornswoggle to the floor. Jesse tags Festus. He wipes out both Edgeheads and the champs. Jesse goes up top, but Ryder pulls Festus out, and Hawkins slams Jesse down to win the match and the titles for the Edgeheads. I, I this is fun. It was a good start. All the teams worked smartly, only tagging each other. Other teams had a blind tag to get in. It wasn't as hectic or you know frenetic as some of these matches can get, but the heat segments on Finley were really solid. It was a good change, too, to get the belts into La Familia. Uh, Miz and Morrison are good enough. They can elevate without controlling the titles at all times. So, Scott, I, I thought this was pretty good. I went two and a half stars. Uh, a fine little tag opener. Yeah, I, I gave it a two and a half as well. Uh, your match time, 9.05. Uh, yeah, I, uh, it was, again, it was just, you know, a good match to kind of, mm-hmm. kind of focus the tag division on, on the strong guys in, on that brand. Um, yeah, with edge kind of on the shit list, uh, with Vicky, we'll get more into that later in the show. Uh, and Chavo pretty much becoming a jobber. Uh, you might as well, you know, that, that whole La Familia needed some kind of, uh, juice. So yeah, you might as well give Hawkins and Ryder the tag belts. Why the hell not? I mean, you know, it doesn't, doesn't hurt anybody. Um, other than that, I it was pretty good. Again, I like the Jesse and Festus gimmick, but for the most part, Scotty, uh, not, not a bad opener, pretty solid and, and kept the tag division strong and, and gives La Familia some juice. Yeah, I had it two and a half as well. So we're across the board. Um, I will say that Jr. you know, he might still be losing his fastball at this point, but he has a solid 12 to six curve when Jesse and Festus were coming out. He said that they're representing the backwoods of America. I don't know <laughs> why that made me laugh, but it did. Yeah. Yes. Um, I really felt that Finley was the MVP of the match. Um, he really held it in there for like the middle portions when like there was the heat segments and everything. Um, and when Hawkins knocked Hornswoggle, Hornswoggle off the apron, I laughed at that as well. Cause he just went flying like an inflatable, um, like playable chair or something. And he just, it was just, just great. I was shocked that Hawkins and Ryder won because they were in long Island. So that's where, you know, Zach Ryder is from, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was just going with like, Oh, they'll probably be the ones taking the pin. So I was, yeah. Cool shocked, little home moment. They, that. You don't think of. Yeah. 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 yeah it's uh it was, it was an interesting match. I thought Finley and Hornswoggle again, did, did a pretty good job too. So that was good. Um, all right, let's keep on rolling. We go right back to the ring. Our United States title is on the line as Matt Hardy takes on Shelton Benjamin. Scott, how did we get to this match? Uh, all right. Not too much here. On the uh, 7-4 SmackDown, Hardy defeated Benjamin, Chavo Guerrero, and Mr. Kennedy in a fatal four-way when he pinned Guerrero. And on the 7-11 SmackDown, Benjamin defeated Hardy in a non-title match, which means the following week on 7-18, this match was announced. So pretty, pretty straightforward. 
It's a good one on paper, too. We'll see. Uh, mm-hmm. Hardy's been a, having a very high-quality run uh, and a really good challenger, like I said. Uh, Shelton grabs control quickly. Hardy comes back with an arm drag. Armbar peppers some strikes. Shelton dodges a charge and flicks Hardy over the top rope. Shelton smacks him out there, shoots him back in with a back suplex uh, once he gets back in the ring. Shelton grabs a hammerlock. The crowd is rallying Hardy very loudly. Good vibes uh, here echoing out from the crowd. Shelton hits a seated abdominal stretch. Hardy pushes back with punches. Shelton goes to a backbreaker into a dragon sleeper, really focusing the upper back. Gets a stinger splash, but he dodges a charge and starts to unload. Hardy gets two on a middle rope leg drop as the crowd is super engaged. Hardy leaps off the middle rope again, but Shelton catches him and throws him into a buckle bomb in a great spot. We get a flurry of pin attempts into a side effect for two. Really good pacing. Shelton goes at the back again, puts Hardy in the top rope, but Hardy knocks him into the mat and hits a moonsault. But Hardy hurts his head on the way down, and Shelton is the pay dirt for the upset win. Uh, a great finish, despite the sloppiness on the moonsault. Uh, I really like the pay dirt into the uh, the shock. It, w- it was a lot of fun. The crowd was great. Both guys really chugged along. Two veterans working a quality match. The back work by Shelton was crisp. Hardy's been so good threading these matches and building to sh- uh, crescendo. A uh, good surprise finish, but it felt earned shift. It, w- it was a clean win by Shelton, and he's now our U.S. champion, and I went three and a quarter stars on this. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like I'm parodying you. I, I went three and a quarter as well, but it was like I'm, I've always been a Shelton fan, like from his stuff with, um, you know, Charlie Hoss with, with Team Angle to win. Like I thought he was going to be a main eventer when he joined Raw and had that Bang Grover match with Triple H. And here he was the gold standard. I didn't realize he busted out the buckle bomb before Seth Rollins. I thought <laughs> right. Seth, I was like, oh, mm. my goodness, I had no idea um, mm-hmm. with that. They had a had a hell of a match. Uh, and, like, you know, I've been listening when you guys have been doing since you returned um, to 08. I didn't realize how much the crowd was in on Matt. Hart. Like, I think this is, like, the most over he's been as, like, a singles competitor right here. And I know they sent him to ECW, so they had to get the title off of him. But JR foreshadowed this when – um, Hardy was walking down saying the U.S. title has never been lost at a great American bash. Right. And I was like, son of a bitch, JR. Like, what are you doing? Mm. No, Hardy was super over. He was a great TV worker on the stretch. was having, like, weekly really good matches. And the MVP feud got him over quite a bit, too. So, yeah, the crowd was, the crowd was really into him. Uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this match very much. I gave it uh three and a half. Uh, your match time is nine 33. So a good pace match. Uh, I was, I, I want to talk about Shelton for a minute. Um, you know, here's a guy that always kind of, you know, gets his, a match, a good run here and a good run there. And then kind of gets lost in the shuffle and he had the mama thing and, you know, it was a big fucking joke and everything. But, uh, in this stretch where he's kind of finally becoming more of a veteran, uh, you know, even though he's been there, what, what, five years now. So he's definitely settling in as a guy who can be relied upon to put on good matches. And this was a good a good thing for even for for Matt Hardy, uh, uh, even though he lost um, because, you know, with MVP, even though MVP was was giving him better and better matches, obviously, Matt, a little more experience in that aspect. But. With Shelton, you had a guy who eh, probably move for moves, probably a little bit of a better wrestler than Matt is. But uh, I think they settled in quite nicely. And I feel like Matt has definitely uh, forged himself a, a, a spot as one of the most reliable faces, not faces, good guy faces just there right? on the on the roster. Uh, you know, the, the top of the card. On SmackDown is all Edge and you know Taker and 
before he moved over Batista. We'll get more into him in a minute. Um, and Matt kind of really galvanized the mid card into something really good, particularly on those SmackDowns where, you know, you, you needed to have stuff in the middle of the show to bridge the edge stuff, you know, the edge taker, edge, whatever stuff. And in this case, we all know who edge is facing, but Matt really did a great job of kind of galvanizing and, and stabilizing that middle of the card on SmackDown. And this match proved that like he was getting in there with everybody and great feud with MVP, but it was time for him to kind of move on to something else. And the fact this was an upset, I think makes it even better that he was, you know, able to put somebody over and, and Shelton was starting to look strong as well. Overall, this really, I think not only was a great match, but really helped SmackDown uh, in terms of, of, you know, getting that mid card really looking good as you're bookending the edge, you know, main event stuff. So really a great match. <clears throat> and uh, again, just another uh, feather in, in Hardy's cap as a guy that could be relied on immensely, unlike, you know, perhaps his brother, but you know, that's neither here nor there, but uh, I, I thought it was a great match again. And, and it just makes both guys look really good and made SmackDown look good. All right, we get clips from Raw where Todd Grisham talked to CM Punk about the perception that he has no chance to beat Batista. We then get a video package of the Guerrero, uh, Vicky Guerrero Edge wedding, Triple H interrupting and revealing that Edge had cheated on her with the wedding planner. JR then plugs the mobile poll. Who do you sympathize with, more Edge or Vicky? And that brings us to our next match, which is for the ECW title. Features Tommy Dreamer challenging Mark Henry. Scott, how do we get to hit, uh, this match? Yes, uh, very interesting here. Uh, this is the pay-per-view debut for one Colin Delaney mm. as he debuted back <laughs> as he debuted uh, back in late 2007 and would appear regularly on TV. Thankful for getting a chance only to get fucking murdered uh, by various superstars. And beginning in February, Dreamer would take him under his wing and he would earn his contract by defeating Armando Estrada on the 5-6 ECW, though this would end up being his only pay-per-view as he would be released uh, the following month. Guess. Another guy... Gaz, another guy who actually made his uh, return to the WWE family, Tony Atlas. This was his first appearance with the company since his Hall of Fame mm. uh, induction two years earlier in 2006 and his last pay-per-view appearance a whopping 11 years ago in Chicago when he was in the front row at WrestleMania 13. I can give the man an inch, he'll take a foot. <laughs> with some chitlins on the 7-1 ECW if you watched uh, Legends House Henry bragged about his win at Night of Champions before being interrupted by Dreamer who demanded a title shot and Henry said Dreamer could get a shot if Colin Delaney defeated him in a match though Henry would defeat Delaney in obviously a squash on the 7-8 ECW Long introduced Tony Atlas who had he had invited to be the guest ring announcer for the main event and in the main event, Dreamer and Henry went to a double count-out after Henry went after Delaney. Atlas looked like he would assist Delaney, only to attack him, and Henry would give Dreamer a power slam on the floor as Atlas declared him the winner, and the two walked off together. On the 7:15 ECW, Atlas and Henry did an interview as they challenged a fan to bend a frying pan in half, and the fan would fail and was sent back to his seat as Henry easily bent the pan in half. Dreamer would come out and attempted to do it himself, though he would hit Henry in the head with the pan, and Teddy Long would eject Dreamer from the building as Atlas and Henry confronted Delaney backstage with Henry putting Delaney in a bear hug. Tony Atlas, a heel. He's back. <clears throat> I think he's a great presence. He's a perfect role for Henry, given the you know strongman stuff. Right. So I like that as a choice. 
Uh, Mike Adelina and the Taz, of course, join us now, and uh, they recap how Alice and Henry get together. Dreamer starts out with his young boy, Delaney. Adam Lee says Dreamer is treating this like a Super Bowl. He's wanted this title forever. Henry chucks Dreamer around. Adam Lee says Dreamer has said he would retire if he doesn't win, no matter who the champion is. Henry uses his power to dominate, standing and leaning on Tommy. Cracks a neck vice, a knuckle lock, just really owning Dreamer. Tommy breaks free, lands two punches, but Henry shoves him back down, back to a knuckle lock. Henry misses a splash, and Dreamer hits a low drop kick and peppers away. Dodges a charge and gets two on a neck breaker. Tommy then hits a DDT for two, but Atlas distracts him. Delaney comes over and ties up Atlas, but as Tommy goes to the middle rope, Colin turns on his mentor, yanks his arm across the top rope, and Henry hits a power slam for the win. I really like Henry during the stretch, but this is a bland match. Uh, Tommy's Never Say Die comeback was pretty good. The turn was super obvious at the end, given the whole hype of what the match meant for Tommy and this and that. It was pretty pretty clear uh, that Delaney was probably going to turn on him. We'll see what Tommy does, but Henry chugs on. Uh, not the strongest outing for Team ECW here, Scott. I went. I went a star and three quarters. Uh, I went even less. I went a star and a half. I did not like this match at all. Uh, Five twenty nine, uh, merciful length. Um, yeah, there's the frying pan. Um, yeah, uh, it's this match was not good. It was not good at all. Uh, uh, Tommy, it's very slow plotting and um, the heel turn. I mean. Tommy's sitting on the on the turnbuckle. And he, it feels like they're sitting there for like three minutes, and you're seeing Colin trying to like time his arm, his his hand as he's ready because he's you know he obviously he um grabs um Tommy's arm and kind of gets him to clothesline himself. You're, you can see him like timing it and waiting and waiting and waiting. And waiting. It's like taking forever. Uh, so predictable. Uh, not much more to say here. Shift a, a star and a half, and just just not very good. Yeah, I want to start in a quarter. This match sucked. Um, there, there's no other way around it. Great. I forgot that uh, Colin Delaney was great value Mikey Whipwreck from Extreme Three-Way Dance. Um, it, it was just pitiful. Um, I, I'm not, like, I guess like if I went back and like uh, something listened to Extreme Three-Way Dance, I went back and watched like the rise of Tommy Dreamer then mm-hmm. in like 95, 96, I would get him more. I, I just saw him for the first time when he came to WWE when he was like, drinking tobacco spit and everything. So I never took him serious as like right. a, a performer. So like seeing him in this, I'm just like, Oh, he's just going to get squashed. And they drug this out. And like you said, like he stood on the top rope and like, I don't know if Colin missed his cue or what, but it was like, we're waiting, we're waiting. And then like, he like flips his leg out from under him. And I was like, I know Henry goes on to great things later with the um, hall of hall of pain, but th- this was just really bad. Like it, it was the worst match on the show for me. Spoiler alert. Yeah, no, easily so. And it, it is kind of goofy how they tie in the ECW title to the original, right? The Dreamer never won the ECW title. He's dying to win it. Like, it's, it's obviously not the same. <laughs> That's the one he chased all those years. Uh, so that that always rung a little hollow. The Delaney turn felt like a turn for the sake of a turn. Like, was that guy really built to be like a heel turd? I don't know. He's probably best suited as a young flying, you know, whatever, young getting heat, trying to make comebacks guy who's under the tutelage of the veteran. So. That felt kind of stupid and aimless as well. So we'll see if it goes anywhere. And obviously not too far since we know Scott just told us the lady's gone within a month. So yeah. seems kind of pointless overall. And uh, yeah, and, and Schiff mentioned, if you want to hear more about the real ECW, uh, you can check out Extreme Three-Way Dance every other Thursday on the North-South Connection. We are in uh, just actually 
surpassing or right around barely legal 1997. So Scott, we're finally covering it all these years later, barely legal. 1997. Yes. But um, <laughs> so we'll see how the company, you know, bounces off of that. And, and do they continue to grow? Do you start to still see the differences that are there? So it's, it's an interesting time period in ECW history. And you know, we started that journey in February of 94. So it's come a long way. All right. We get a recap video for our next match, which is the ongoing feud. Between Shawn Michaels and Chris Jericho sees his next in-ring installment. Scott, what has happened with these two guys since our last show? Uh, stuff just gets stuff just gets better and better. Uh, on the 6:30 Raw, Jericho cut a promo and challenged Michaels to a match at the pay-per-view before getting his rematch against Kofi Kingston for the Intercontinental Title. And Kingston would defeat Jericho by DQ, and Jericho would attack him after the match by injuring his eyes. On the 7:7 Raw, Michaels accepted Jericho's challenge as Jericho and Cade came out with Jericho saying Michaels was trying to be a martyr for the fans by wrestling injured. And Michael said he could retire tomorrow and be remembered forever while Jericho wasn't at peace with himself and would never be what Michaels is. Wow. On the 714 Raw, Michaels and Jericho brawled in the aisle at the start of the show with officials breaking it up. Later in the night, Jericho defeated Paul London and offered him a chance to follow Jericho's example of greatness or Michael's example of lies and deceit. Michaels would come out on the stage and say that neither man's mind would be changed, and the worst was yet to come at the pay-per-view. Indeed, it would be. Well, let's get to it. This feud has been a masterpiece. Delivered Jericho to the perfect righteous heel role, which has been extremely well done. <clears throat> you know, it really helped him get back on track after a shaky return early in the early months since his comeback. We get stoic and focused entrances by both. The drama and anger are very thick on both sides. We get a stare down. Jericho goes right to a strike flurry as Sean tries to break free. Sean dodges a slam of the forearm and hammers away. Jericho pushes Sean off, but Sean takes his leg out. Sean keeps hammering away the eye, but Jericho reverses a whip and shoots Sean hard to the corner. Flips out to the apron. Jericho knocks him down with a springboard drop kick. Keeps kipping away at the ribs. He hits a back suplex on the ribs. Anytime Sean tries to come back, he goes at the ribs. Jericho goes to a surfboard submission. Keeps cutting off comebacks with hard punches. Gets an end to for two. Jericho goes to the middle rope, but leaps right into an atomic drop, and Sean starts to chop away. Sean hits a flying forearm and kips up, but the ribs are really slowing him down. Jericho gets a sunset flip into the walls of Jericho, which looks great. Sean eventually crawls to the ropes. Jericho is awesome here. He's just countering every strike and getting right back into his offense. Sean counters a bulldog and a clothesline. Heads up top, but he's still moving very slowly. Jericho crotches him and slugs away. Sean keeps punching back. They fight over a superplex. Sean fires up and tunes up the band, but Lance Cade comes out, trips him up. Jericho goes to the code breaker, but Sean dodges it, gets a roll up for two. Jericho gets a roll up as well. As Cole reminds us that Cade was Sean's pupil at one point. Sean flings Jericho over the top rope. He lands into Cade. Sean heads up top, and it's a moonsault into both men. But Jericho's up first. He hits a nasty back elbow, slides inside, and we see that Sean is now busted wide open over his eye. Jericho sees the blood. He's wide-eyed and starts to punch away at the eye. The ref stops him and checks with Sean, but Sean keeps going. And Jericho just keeps punching and kicking the eye. Cade lands a shot, too, as Sean is in real trouble here. Jericho drags Sean up and talks shit, but Sean drags into a, a crossface. Jericho fights up and slings Sean into the ropes, which is a super nasty. He just bounces off of it. The ref again pulls Jericho off, but he keeps pushing and pounding on the cut. Sean is a real mess, but he won't let the ref stop it, so Jericho just keeps kicking him in the head over and over. Jericho gets a side headlock. He keeps punching until the ref finally breaks it up and stops the match which just brings amazing heat from the crowd. Jericho Cade walk off as the doctors check on the busted up Sean. Uh, Schiff, 
great match, a real slugfest, smart transitions and comebacks, two guys that just hate each other using simple spots and a basic story, uh, but it connected because they're so good at what they do. Jericho's locked in. Him going manic and punishing the eye was awesome. Sean Selling was on point. Just another great step in a tremendous feud. It stands on its own. It stands as part of the larger issue, however you want to watch it. The finish was epic as well as Jericho just beat Sean to bloody pulp and forced the match to be stopped. Just top-notch stuff. I went four and a quarter, and I feel like this is a forgotten classic, this match. I know everyone remembers the feud and their final couple of matches, but this one I feel like never gets talked about. Yeah, I, I went four and a half on this. I, I was shocked at how mm-hmm. good it was. Like I like like you just said, like everyone remembers the feud. Like uh, when y'all get to a couple matches down the road, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. What happens to SummerSlam is great. But this match, like it had me hooked from the beginning. I was sitting there just watching it. And I loved from the beginning. Sean was selling his ribs, and like that's what he worked on. Like he would like like throw a punch. His, he would go to his ribs. That awesome drop kick from the middle rope by Sean. Like it seemed like these two chemistry, these two guys chemistry is never talked about when you hear like the list of Sean's great opponents, but every match they had, in my opinion, was at least four stars. So, you know, it's just great. And I love like Sean sell, like Sean just selling. Um, he also did a great counter of the code breaker. And like, we see like the moonsault from, Kate, from, um, HPK Moonsault to Kate and Jericho. That was nice. And like, they, I forgot that they had added Kate to this feud because, like you guys said, he's gone within like three weeks or something. Um, but yeah, I love when he saw the bloody eye. He just went for it again and made him mm-hmm. look like such a piece of shit. And it it was all. This is Jericho's. Like some people say, AEW is his best work. This run is his best work. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, four and a half for me. Your match time was a robust 18-18. Loved every second of it. You know, it's funny we talk about <clears throat> chemistry with these two guys because, you know, they wrestled at WrestleMania 19, and then they don't really do anything together for a couple of years. And then, um, you know, and then Jericho leaves in the summer of 05 and doesn't come back for over two years. And comes back in at the end of 07 and these two reacquaint themselves without really doing much. I mean, what other matches did they have in 03? Maybe they had a raw here and there, but I feel like other than that match, that amazing match they had at WrestleMania 19, that they really didn't do much after that. And then you talk about chemistry shift. These guys just settled in over this, this stretch in 2008 as if they'd been wrestling like as often as Sean and Triple H have over the past, you know, five years or whatever, uh, six years at this point. I don't know if it's just because they're great at what they do or maybe they're mind readers. I don't know. But and then, I mean, we're talking about Sean here, so it's not like Sean, you know, it's fucking Sean. I mean, you can wrestle mm-hmm. a fucking op, you know, um, but the fact that they were so smooth. Uh, just settling in, you know, like Jericho. I, I give even more props to Jericho because he's gotten to this point now in his career where he could just settle in and do the shit right, you know? And uh, I, I was so stunned at how much I love this match. Again, not stunned because I didn't think they, they could do it, obviously. But like you said, Schiff and JR, that I don't even remember this match being this good. I barely remember this right. match even happening until yeah. we, we got into the show. And holy shit, was it good. This is a match that... Uh, Needs to be in the annals of best of lists for mm-hmm. for WWE. I mean, 
we all know what their best one in this stretch will be, and we'll get to that one, Jr. down the line. But this this one is definitely one that everybody has to go, go to the and cock. There's the reason. There's a reason it's said that like this is the last great feud in company history. Now, I, I mean, there may be others. We'll we'll see, but it's definitely up there um, for sure. And, yeah. and I'm glad the feud is remembered as such. Uh, this match needs to be, like you said, Scott, like on more lists and and way more in the public purview because it's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I, I wish I'd remembered this match. I mean, I think you know if if we ever you know mm-hmm. on our match on our yearly stretch projects on the website, if we if we ever redo our top 100 WWE matches, I, I definitely would put this on here, yeah. hands down. Like, I, I, I'm stunned at how awesome this match is and how it's forgotten in the annals. Uh, maybe it's because it was the back end of, of Ruthless Aggression, as we talked about, and they were coming to the end of the line. But I, speaking of Ruthless Aggression, one more point, and then we'll move on. I feel like backstage, the feeling was this was the end of the, mm. the TV 14 era. So knowing Sean, it's like, I right, want not just rip my fucking scalp off. Just have my fucking brains. <laughs> Bleed all right. over the fucking place since we're, I know we're not going to do it again for a while on purpose, if you know what I mean. Um, because it seemed like, holy shit. I mean, it's just typical Sean, just nick a fucking artery and just pray I don't die. Um, it's just it's just awesome. It's amazing. Please watch this match. You have to. Out it's of must. Yeah. All right. JR and Foley reset. They talk to Edge from the locker room. Edge says Triple H ruined his life and he's desperate and dangerous. And JR runs the uh, plug for the mobile pole one more time. We then get a big-time match between Michelle McCool and Natalia as SmackDown is creating a Divas title. So, uh, Scott, how do we get to this title launch and these two being the ladies involved for it? All right. Well, this is the official debut of the WWE Divas Championship. Obviously, mm-hmm. they wanted to have, like, on, like, on, like for the guys, they wanted to have... Uh, two major women's titles in the WWE Women's Championship is, of course, currently on Raw. Uh, so this will be exclusive to SmackDown. Uh, on the 6-6 SmackDown, Vicky Guerrero announced the creation of the Divas Championship and put together a six-way golden dream on a pole match. <laughs> okay. Uh, to determine one of the contenders for the title. And that night, Natalia defeated McCool, Victoria, Cherry, Poor Cherry, she's lost in the shuffle. Layla and Maurice to earn one of the spots. On the 7-4 SmackDown, McCool defeated Victoria, Cherry, Maurice, and Kelly Kelly in a five-way golden dream on a pole match. <laughs> Fucking Vince. Like, he had to have named that match. Mm-hmm. Uh, to become the second contender. While Natalia did commentary, and it was announced the trio, uh, the two, I should, sorry, would uh, face off at the pay-per-view. On the 7-11 SmackDown, Natalia Maurice defeated McCool and Cherry in a tag match when Natalia forced Cherry to submit, and she attacked McCool after the match and hit a suplex on the floor. And on the 7-18 SmackDown, just two days before, McCool brawled with Natalia and was ejected from the building, and then Natalia would defeat Cherry in a squash. Wow, Cherry just jobbing all over the place. <laughs> but uh, here we are. Put this golden dream on your pole, baby. All right, we got a big <laughs> match here. The Davis title on the line, vacant. Brand new champion to be determined. Uh, Redhead Natalia steps out. Big spot for her being so new here. Michelle takes her down to start, gets a near fall with a low drop kick. JR talks about Michelle's athletic background. She stumbles on a tough backdrop counter, but comes up with a kick and walks into a wheelbarrow while Natty spikes her across the top rope. Natty goes to work on the legs and then drops into a surfboard, but Michelle powers out and grabs a heel hook. Natty gets to the ropes. 
Natty wraps her on the post and stomps away. Hooks a sharpshooter, but Michelle gets to the ropes. Natty slugs away, goes for it again, but Michelle takes her down into a heel hook. It really wrenches it until Natty taps out. And Michelle is our brand new Divas champion. I thought this was pretty solid. It was a real tough spot following Michaels and Jericho. They did a good job staying focused. It worked in some different submission stuff. Michelle's a good choice to get the belt to. Let Natty work back up the card now. I went two and a quarter, Scott. Uh, yeah, uh, I enjoyed this match. I gave it a two. Uh, your time after that epic thing, 414. This is a fine spot for this. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say this respectfully. Uh, you'd rather have a women's match pat, uh, follow something like this rather than like another men's match because mm. the, the, the comparison would be too much there. And at least with the women's match, they have their own set of different right. set of guidelines and visuals to make the match fine. Um, Natalia with the red hair and the non potox is very <laughs> unnerving. It's crazy, but um but we know she's a good I mean at the time I thought she was a pretty good worker. That would change over time, but uh that was a fine match. Um I don't I gotta admit though, I don't know if I was totally in favor of a second women's belt. Uh I don't know if this women's division at the time was deep enough. Having a bunch of women and having a bunch of talented women are two different things. Making a second belt just because there's too many women on the roster not getting title shots. I thought that was, I don't know if that was the smartest move on the planet, but if they were trying to be linear, you know, if you have two main event titles, two secondary titles, and two tags, it makes sense to have two women's belts. Um, I remember first seeing the Divas belt going, that is a piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about, because I mean, it's just so insulting. You know, you have like, you know, you have the women's title on Raw, which is like a you know solid-looking, cool, respectful championship belt. And then you have this Divas belt, which looks like something that you would get on a Bratz doll uh, or with candy. Like, it was bullshit. Like, really? Well, you know I mean, what? They end up doing a nice job. Like, it becomes synonymous with this era on SmackDown. Um, I, I think they end up taking something that looked initially goofy or cheesy. And I don't know. It kind of becomes you know, adjusted to the brand. Uh, I agree. Um, but I mean, I, it's just, it looked like, it just looked so insulting to have such an ugly fucking joke belt to try to put over the women, on uh, the women wrestlers on SmackDown mm. while the raw belt looked like an actual world. Title. I don't know, but you're right. After a while, you're, I mean, they have the belt for what? Eight, uh, eight years. So, mm. uh, seven and a half years. Yeah. Eight years. WrestleMania 32. Yeah. Eight, almost eight years. Um, and and you're right. It is the belt that that show is that that side is meant for. So, um, not a terrible match shift. I lo- it's fine. It was a good spot on the card to put it. Um, what are your thoughts? I actually would have swapped it with the Mark Henry match because I, th- I think that would have been better. But you know, at this point, sadly, the women's division was not taken serious within the company, and, the, and this was like known as the piss break match. Um, crowd did not care one iota. I felt bad because they actually did a pretty good job. Um, I like Natty working the leg, and like Natty even had a nice surfboard with this. Um, I was shocked that Michelle won with the heel hook. To be completely honest, if you would have told me, I, I have no idea what Michelle McCool's finisher is, so I guess it's the heel hook that that works for me. Um, because I uh, I was in college during this point, so like SmackDown on Fridays was not the high priority for me. Right, right. Obviously, uh, I went two and a quarter as well. Um, it was just a 
you know, I felt bad for these women, but, you know, Ruins wrestling wouldn't be taken serious to like what 2014 15. So, yeah, I agree with that. But I, again, I think I think SmackDown they do okay with it, like they really try mm-hmm. hard to give them. I think Michelle, I'm, I'm curious how she grows, Scott, and how this goes. Um, because yeah. I do think she actually ends up being a pretty good uh standard torchbearer during this time frame of SmackDown. I know she gets like when the women's Royal Rumble comes around, she gets like the diesel push, it seems like yeah. every year in it. So, like. Well, there's different reasons now, but at the yeah. time, yeah. Uh, the relationship wasn't in place, so uh, they were pushing her for other reasons, but we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, but it was definitely a tough spot, and I thought they did pretty well, considering, like, two was two women who hadn't really super well-known, uh, kind of new. Like, I, th- I thought they did okay, keeping the, the crowd engaged, so. All right, Eve and Cherry come out to celebrate uh, Michelle, but Jericho cuts them off and tells the fans to keep their ticket subs because they're significant. This is the night that Shawn Michaels had his last match. He says Sean is a detached retina and his career is now over. And this proves that sometimes the good guys win and the wicked are punished. But Sean can take comfort that the worst has finally come. This is an epic promo. (laughs) Just amazing stuff. That Jericho could have that match and then come out and deliver this promo is awesome. Mm. And and he was covered with blood, too, which just added added more to it to me. Because I love that he didn't clean himself up. He's just like, I'm going back out there and I'm going to tell him what's on my mind. It was awesome. All right, let's get to our next match. This is for the World Heavyweight title. Our brand new champion, CM Punk. Yes, the belt is back on Raw. If you recall, we last, last left our pay-per-view. Uh, both belts look to be on SmackDown. But CM Punk is our world champion, and he's defending against who else but Batista getting another crack at the world title, Scott. How did uh, this all unfold? Uh, Batista came out and just said, I want it. And that, No, I'm just saying. It seems like, that seems like how it always Give me is. another one. Give me another one. Um... On the 6.30 Raw, Jim Ross was giving his farewell address when Edge interrupted him and taunted the fans saying that Raw no longer would have a world champion, but then Batista would come out and attack Edge before heading to the back. As he was leaving, Punk would come out with the referee, cashed in his money in the bank, gave Edge the go to sleep, and became the new world heavyweight champion. I remember that pop was fucking batshit. Um, on the 7.7 Raw, Vicky Guerrero appeared and demanded Punk hand her the title and apologize for what he did last week to Edge. But Punk refused and said he only did what Edge would have done in the same situation and joked that maybe she could find someone else to marry like the great Kali. <laughs> uh, after that, JBL, John Cena, Batista, and Kane all came out and demanded title shots. And later that night, Batista would defeat Cena, JBL, and Kane in a three-way, a uh, fatal four-way to become the number one contender. On the 7-14 Raw, Kane challenged Punk to a non-title match when Punk accepted and Punk would defeat Kane by countout, and Kane attacked him after the match only for Batista to make the save. Punk would offer a handshake, which Batista refused by saying he wasn't Punk's friend and would take the title, and he would pat Punk on the cheek, and Punk shoved him away with Batista laying Punk out. There we go. All right, well, big moment. to see Punk quickly ascended out of that quicksand of ECW we've been complaining about, all the way up to Raw and World Champion as he got... So fine. I'm all right with it. Uh, and Punk, this is a good chance to show if he's legit or not. So we'll see how that plays out. Punk gets a good pop. Uh, of course, he enters first, though. Batista doesn't want the star power in the big entrance. So it feels like, I don't know, it feels like Punk is working to that point, even though he's a champion. Stare down and feeling out. Punk tries to wrestle Batista. Batista keeps using a lot of strikes, kicks Punk in the head. Punk comes back with a drop kick. Batista overpowers him, throws him hard to the buckle, gets a nice suplex, goes to a chin lock. Punk tries to come back, uh, even knocks Batista outside at one point, but uh, Batista battles right back in. 
Punk gets a two on a cross uh, cross body block, but Batista counters a knee lift and eventually snaps him down the power slam. The crowd's pretty hot for this, and they're split as well throughout the match. Punk counters a Batista bomb by grabbing the top rope and lands some kicks. Hits the running knee, but Batista shoves off a bulldog. Punk recovers with a stiff head kick. Batista powers back with some hard strikes. Punk goes to a side hammerlock, but Batista rolls through for an air fall. Batista blocks a kick, comes back with a clothesline, drives Punk to the corner. Punk leaps off the apron, but Batista catches him and spinebusters him on the floor. Batista drags Punk inside, but as he slides in, out comes Kane, who takes him out for the double disqualification. Kane goes inside and wipes out Punk as well and leaves the mystery satchel, but he stops and kicks a cameraman on the way by. After Kane leaves, Batista lays out Punk with the Batista bomb. Uh, I actually thought this match was quite good. I did not remember this at all uh, until the stupid finish. I guess you couldn't have Batista lose again. Uh, but I think Punk could have used the win um, as his reign's getting going. The match itself was building nicely. Had a pretty good fight, big fight feel to it. A lot of big strikes and counter strikes. Batista's upped his game so much in these types of matches. The storytelling and pacing has come a long way. Punk keeps the belt, but he needs to be set up as the guy. So either give him someone he can beat or, you know, don't do it, I guess. Uh, the finish and post attack didn't help him at all as he gets laid out. But Scott, I went three and a quarter. Uh, again, I thought this was a pretty good match, surprisingly good, but I did not like the finish. Um, I thought this match was okay. I gave it two and three quarters. Your match time, 11-10. Um, I can't believe I'm about to say this because, you know, I love uh, Batista, but I was getting really, I was getting Batista fatigue, Batista teague. Um, I was getting kind of tired of seeing him in every fucking title match. It was getting a little old. I don't know if it was just because he was like the only other guy on SmackDown um, or I guess in this case, Raw. Uh, and now I don't know. It just I was just kind of getting Batista fatigue at this point, seeing him get every title shot and then find a way to not win. It, it was getting a little old. Having said that, I mean, Punk was a different kind of opponent at that time. So I, I'm not that part I was OK with. I was just tired of seeing another Batista match. Like, I don't know why I was getting so aggravated. <laughs> it, was, it was very weird, but um the match was fine. I mean, it wasn't anything awesome, but it didn't suck. Uh, the Kane run in, I guess, guess what? We got to protect Batista because he can't keep losing title matches since he's in all of them. Uh, it's just, I don't know. I don't know, Schiff. I was just getting a little, I was getting some Batista, Batista Teague, uh, Batista Teague uh, at this point. But the match isn't terrible. It did have a big fight feel. Uh, the ending kind of sucked, but I could see why they had to do it. Yeah, I, I remember a meme going around the time of Batista always putting in the Contra code, uh, and that's how he got unlimited title shots. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so going back to the promo video for this, they had like great value, Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On, as they lead up to the um, the cash-in, which I thought mm -hmm. was just absurd, and then it went to some butt rock song. But, you know, from what happens right now, um, what has happened right now in – current wrestling what i'm gonna say <laughs> just go with me if we would have recorded before the past couple of days have been better but this is why people think punk's reign is a joke like they can't they should never gave him batista they should have just right. gave him kane like they did daniel bryan and chris benoit it, it doesn't feel like he's mm -hmm. a true champion it makes him look like a joke and then he gets punked out by Batista at the end of the match, like right. it makes him that was like, a real bad part. Because Kane yeah. coming in, at least is like, all right, this asshole broke up the match, fine. It's uh, but the beatdown after and leaving him laid out was the big problem. It's like way to make him look like a little like your little brother. It's like, oh, you know, he's the world champion, but he's not really the world champion. You get you get what I'm saying? And 
I agree with you, Justin. This was a good match. Like I, I, I gave it three and a quarter. Like I was like on the edge of my seat. I was like, oh my goodness, I had no recollection of this match. Lynn Kane comes down, and you know, Scott, you have uh, Batista Teague. I have uh, Kane being pushed as a main eventer Teague, which mm-hmm. sadly will <laughs> yeah. continue for like the next ten years. So yes. it, it's just frustrating. But like they, you know, they can't be like, well, there has to be a winner. Then don't book the match. Don't have Batista face Punk. Like, you could have had Batista and Kane or something and have Punk, you know, I I don't know who you face, but that's, I'm not the, I'm not the writer. Like, or have Kane, if you're going to have Kane interfere and do a DQ, have him attack Batista and Punk saves and runs Kane off. And then at least he looks like strong, you know, that he attacked Kane, but it's Punk that was, you know, stood tall at the end. That was, and then they like shake hands. The image of him being laid out is what the big problem is. Yeah, and I will say I, I do agree with you, Justin. This crowd was split 50-50, which is shocking because this was when Big Dave was, like, on top of the world as a babyface. Right. Yes. So to have that is just amazing. But, yeah, it's it, it's just infuriating to me. Like, this is why it took him three more years, like, you know, to quote-unquote get over. Now, you know, he may be a dick, as we've seen, but, like, it's why this is a joke. Mm-hmm. All right, we get a recap of our next match, which continues the feud between John Cena and JBL. And it's going to be a very interesting match, Scott. How did this all get set up? Well, uh, Batista wanted another title. No, he didn't. Um, so <laughs> on the 630 Raw, uh, JBL challenged New World Champion CM Punk to a title match, only for Cena to interrupt and say Punk should make the decision, and JBL would declare martial law as he had security escort Cena out of the building, but not before getting a few shots in. Later in the night, Punk would defeat JBL after Cena and Crime Time distracted him by brawling with JBL security. On the 7-7 Raw, JBL demanded a rematch against Punk, only for Cena to again interrupt and say they should have a match with Batista and Kane also coming out and adding themselves to the match. Later in the night, Cena drove JBL's limo into the arena, and along with crime time, they would destroy the limo with a crowbar and baseball bats as Cena would spray paint JBL is poopy on the hood of the limo to give us all a preview of what the TVPG era would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it would have spray painted something else. We were in the throes of the ruthless aggression era. Um, on the 714 Raw, JBL challenged Cena to a New York City parking lot brawl, which Cena accepted. And at the end of the night, Cena and Crime Time defeated JBL, Cody Rhodes, and Ted DiBiase in a six-man tag. After the match, JBL goaded Cena backstage and hit him with a pipe before placing him against a car. And he got in his limo and rammed it into Cena and the car as he got out and looked remorseful. It's interesting because I feel like the JBL is poopy. is like what's held up by fans that, like— Degraded this era of wrestling and it happens before the pg era really officially starts right um because that's what you think of when you think of this era is like oh the jbl's poopy right i remember that just being derided left and right uh, all over the internet this i mean it, it was awful rightfully so it's it's terrible stupid uh but the match itself we'll see if it's interesting the feud's been okay it's had ups and downs like we just talked about uh the last two pay-per-view matches have been fine I like the stip for these guys, too, versus just a regular match. Again, we cut to the back of the arena. There's a circle of cars set up. Each guy makes his entrance. JBL has a dresser and pants on. He walks cautiously around the circle, yelling for Cena. An interesting way to start where it's a little bit of hide and seek. JBL scales one car, and all of a sudden we hear another one rev up, and Cena screeches across the circle and crashes it in as JBL scampers away. Cena slugs away and chokes JBL with jumper cables and spikes his head to the hood of a car. Then he slams the hood on JBL twice. That, that looks like it hurts. Cena connects the cable to the engine and hooks up JBL's sack and zaps him. JBL lugs a keg and tosses it at uh, JBL and 
dodges it. I'm sorry. Cena grabs, lugs the keg and tosses it. JBL dodges and it smashes into a windshield. JBL tries to get into a car, but Cena rams his head into the horn over and over, which is funny. JBL comes hammering back and buys some space. The commentary, uh, not much. It's it's pretty much laying out, letting these guys just beat each other apart. JBL throws Cena to an open car door and it breaks clear off. Another rough looking bump. JBL lays some stiff shots on Cena with his fists and the door remnants and then DDTs him on the hood for two. JBL whips Cena through a windshield and DDTs him on the roof of the car. Just a real rough bump. These guys are going for it. JBL kicks Cena low to cut off his comeback, shoots him through a window and shuts him in the car. JBL stumbles over to his limo and pulls out a can of gas. He's rambling about Cena playing hardball. JBL douses the car with gas as the ref is begging him to stop. He pulls out a lighter and chucks it on the car, which immediately lights up. The ref freaks out as JBL watches as an emergency team puts the fire out. JBL goes over a forklift as Cena escapes from the burning car, but Cena meets him before he can do anything else, unloads a flurry using a car, and he locks JBL in it, hops in the forklift, and hoists the car up. Totes it across the garage and into the arena to a big pop. JBL crawls out of the car. The two trade big punches up the ramp until Cena drops him on the steel, hits a spinning slam, and then hits the five-knuckle shuffle, loads up the uh, attitude adjustment. Cena walks around, contemplating doing it on the car, but he takes too long, and JBL slips down and throws Cena off the stage hard through the windshield for the shocking win. It takes a while to clear both guys out after as they sell the brutality. I thought this was pretty fun. It was unique. It was hard-hitting. A good way to cover the limitations. None of the offense felt hokey to me. Just some rough punches and strikes and using the car. Uh, they looked and sounded um, really clean. The pop when they hit the arena was great, too. The crowd was excited to see them back. A really great finish. And it let the crowd kind of see everything, uh, at least part of it, instead of having it all backstage. Uh, Shiv, I thought the finish was a big shock, too. Like, made the crowd, made the wrong call because the crowd was actually behind Cena for once. Uh, it's interesting. You know, JBL is hung in this feud. Will it continue or not? So I went three and a half. I actually, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was the best match of the feud so far. Uh, and it was a, definitely a surprising win. I was shocked at how much I love this match too. Like you said, uh, maybe it's a good thing they went to the PG era because they literally had vehicular homicide, attempted vehicular homicide in the storylines. So, you know, um, I remember watching this Raw when JBL like ran over, quote unquote, ran over scene. And I was like, the hell's going on? Like, I was just shocked. I, I, I will say I did like the Cena and Crime Time together. I wish they would have stuck with that. But I love, like, that they were going at it. This was not treated as, like, a wrestling match. This was treated as a fight. They were hitting each other. Like, JBL lit the car on fire at one point. I did love that when uh, JBL grabbed something out of, like, the um, the limo, the limo driver then just hightailed it out of there. He's like, I don't want to be here for that. It's just something that I, that I loved. I was shocked that JBL won, but, like, he threw him like onto the car and like and then got it. And I I just love the aftermath where like both wrestlers mm-hmm. are just like spent and like you could tell they've been through this war together. And this is another like low key feud like that is not brought up a lot, but it's actually been a really good feud. Like I know you guys have covered it. I went back, watched a couple of the matches, but it, it's been highly entertaining. And you know, I just assumed once JBL got drafted to Raw that he was just like a mid carder, but he's been like upper mid card, like sniffing the main event, and it's been very entertaining, surprisingly. I agree. Uh, 14.36, your match time. Um, I gave it three and a half. I was stunned that JBL won. Uh, Going in, uh, uh, this was another one that I was getting a little fatigued on in like the fourth straight month or something that these guys were together. But it's interesting because, uh, you know, the last time we saw Cena and JBL together, it was 2005. Uh, JBL was champion. Of course, the build of WrestleMania 21. Cena was a kid. JBL was more experienced and, and, and had some good moments. I mean, you could argue that 
I mean, their best match ever is obviously the I Quit from uh, from Judgment Day 05. But but this one comes pretty close. It's different. Um, the result seems uh, more prophetic for me in a in a long term sense because mm-hmm. it, this this proves that Cena is officially bulletproof. And right. saying that after being really in the main events for only, t- I guess, in essence, two and a half years is a big deal. Uh, three and a half years, I guess I should say. Um, it's a big deal that you could sacrifice Cena losing this feud and still be seen as Cena on the card. So kudos to the uh, <clears throat> to creative, to Vince and creative for, for having the, the stones to give JBL this win. When you would think that that Cena would would you know win the last match, but I thought this was a tremendous uh, creative choice to have Cena win, and JBL looks great. I got I gotta be honest with you. I would have put C. I would have put JBL mm-hmm. in this uh, in this match. Uh, I would have put JBL in the main event or in the um, title match with Punk and held this off another month. Or fuck, I would have put Cena against against Punk. Well, I think that's a worse move, though. No, I don't. I don't think they're putting Punk over Cena. It's the same as Batista, and there's a reason JBL wins this match, and it's to do exactly what you just said. So that's that's why he goes over Cena here. But yeah, that that is true. But I, I, I'm just trying to think of reasons for Punk to look better than than he did. But in any event, uh, great match. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I agree, uh, Shift, that it's kind of fun to see JBL in this setting, and he has been uh, he's been pretty solid. But I think creative kind of hit the official bulletproof sign uh, on, uh, you know, on, on Cena that he could, that he could eat, eat a, a loss in a feud ender and still be Cena. So big, big move here. Uh, big move for the creative and a nice match and a good win for JBL. All right. JR and Foley reset things. We get the poll results. Edge wins the more sympathetic 55%. We then get a recap uh, video to hype up our main events. Eve then tries to talk to our world champion in the back, but does not get much out of him. And that brings us to our title match, our duty title match, our main event of the night. Time to play the game. It's amazing how you knock me off my Dream of you and me together. Cause tonight is the night when to be 
All right, Scott, tell us how we got here with your boy, our world champion, defending against Edge. Well, uh, this is a long and serendipitous road. Mm. Um, on the 7-4 SmackDown, Triple H was on the VIP oh, lounge. <laughs> I know. Uh, so <laughs> on the VIP lounge with MVP, who congratulated him on his win at Night of Champions, and then Triple H would make fun of Edge for losing the world title to CM Punk on Raw. Vicky Guerrero would come out and Triple H would congratulate her on her upcoming wedding with Edge, even suggesting that they could get married in Vegas. And she would put Edge over as Triple H made fun of her weight. And she said Triple H would face Edge at the pay-per-view for the WWE Championship. Later in the night, Vicky met with the wedding planner, Alicia Fox. When uh, Hawkins and Ryder came in and she dressed them down for not helping Edge on Raw before putting them in a match against Jesse and Festus, which they lost. She would then confront Edge by saying she uh, didn't give him permission to be on Raw. And she was still in charge and they would have an argument as Edge said he was the real GM of SmackDown and she threw him out of her office. At the end of the night, Edge came to the ring and said what happened Monday wasn't fair, though he would survive even without the support of Vicky. And he threatened to air dirty secrets about her until she interrupted him and he declared the wedding was off and she went hysterical. OK, on the 7-11 SmackDown, Edge cut a promo saying that he was too good for Vicky and vowed to defeat Triple H at the pay-per-view. And Vicky would come out with Hawkins and Ryder and forced Edge to face the big show in a no DQ match. Uh, later that night, Chavo Guerrero assured Edge that he was on his side, though he would go behind his back and told Vicky he was a liar. And Vicky forced Chavo to face Triple H in a match. Triple H would defeat Chavo fairly easily. Edge would meet up with La Familia and say that Vicky was the problem as he asked for her help against show. But Vicky would show up and threaten to fire anyone who tried to help Edge and also threaten to fire Edge if he didn't go through with the match. At the end of the night, show and Edge wrestled to a no contest when Vicky came and protected Edge from being further attacked. And she would apologize for her actions, and Edge would forgive her as they announced the wedding was back on. On the 718 SmackDown, we saw footage from earlier in the day uh, of Edge and Vicky's wedding. And throughout the night, the two would celebrate with La Familia while also making matches for other superstars. At the end of the night, La Familia came out to further celebrate as Edge had a tribute video to Vicky play. But then Triple H came out and said he had video of his own. And he showed hidden camera footage of Edge with Alicia Fox in a hotel room. La Familia would try to stop it, only for Triple H to keep them at bay with the sledgehammer. And the video showed Edge giving Fox a massage while making fun of Vicky's large underwear with Triple H producing a pair that he offered as a gift. At the end of the video, Edge was showing and making out with Fox, and Vicky would go after Edge as the show went off the air. All right, Worlds Collide is Hunter Hearst Helmsley, formerly known as Triple H now. Uh, it's finally on SmackDown in the middle of Edge's domain and reign of La Familia. Destroyed the wedding, wreaked havoc. Edge's solo is world crumbling, but another shot at his beloved title on the line. We get the usual Triple H entrance, still riding the wave of his good comeback run. Edge attacks at the bell. He's in an early rage. Hunter sidesteps a charge. Foley and JR really good here talking about the mind games and talk about where Edge is mentally. Hunter's all over him. Mopping him around the ring. Edge dodges a charge and hot shots him to the barricade to get an opening. Uh, Edge meets him with a knee lift, a club to the back. He's working the back over here. Foley says Edge has coasted too long thanks to La Familia and the nepotism. And now he wants to see the old Edge here. Edge throws Hunter to the steps, goes to a body scissors, pushing through all the comeback attempts using his usual bag of tricks. Edge tries to spear, but Hunter moves and he flies hard to the floor. Foley says that based on the poll, fans seem to have some sympathy for Edge. Edge misses a baseball slide, ends up hitting the impaler on the floor, which is a pretty good-looking spot. Hunter counters a drop kick off the middle rope and catapults Edge to the buckle. Loads up the pedigree, but Edge counters and snaps him hard to the map for two. Hunter dodges a spear, rolls up Edge for two, but Edge comes back with a big boot. 
Hunter counters another attack with the Spine Buster, loads the pedigree. Edge drives him back to the corner, slugs away, and takes over the superplex. Alicia Fox comes out and tries to hand Edge the title, but Vicky runs down and takes out Alicia and takes the belt back. Vicky gets in the ring, but Alicia attacks her, and they brawl to a pop. Edge tries to get involved and ends up spearing Vicky by accident. Alicia leaves as Edge turns right into a pedigree, and that is that. Uh, I thought this was okay. It's kind of the usual Edge stuff where it plotted through the first two-thirds of the match. Kind of got hot at the end. Alicia Vicky had to happen, but also felt kind of forced. However, it was at least done in a way that leaves some story on the table with this all. Edge does a good job looking uh, at the odds with himself out there. Look lost and aggravated, not used to not having the, the deck stacked now. Uh, I thought Hunter kept laying back and waiting for Edge to screw up, which he did. Uh, pretty good match. A step below what they've been doing lately due to the structure. I actually thought it was one of uh, Triple H's uh, lesser matches since this hot streak that started at No Mercy. Uh, but, Scott, I thought it was a, a fine enough match to close the show. I went three stars. Uh, I was excited to see Triple H. Yeah, and... we know. Yeah. I was excited. <laughs> this match had a lot of sex in it. No, mm-hmm. uh, three stars uh, for this one. Uh, your match time, uh, 1648. Uh, no, I, it was nice to see Edge, uh, you know, two guys I like. I, and we haven't really seen them ever really work together. So right. it was a nice change of pace to see both guys, you know, in a feud and Triple H kind of be kind of a goofball and, you know, be babyface douchey, which he's pretty good at. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, he's being douchey against an even bigger douche <laughs> in Edge. Uh, but, you know, it was fine. Uh, the match, um, I liked it. I, I thought it was okay. I thought, you know, I've always been a fan of Edge in the sense that, you know, he can adapt to any type of opponent, and Triple H is, uh, can certainly go with anybody. So um, I, I, just, I think seeing two guys that are very flexible, uh, f- you know, in any type of match really lended itself to being uh, much better than I think people thought. Um, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of the stuff, you know, going on around it. And um, I almost, believe it or not, almost thought Edge was going to win. I almost thought Edge was going to win. No. Uh, but I didn't. Th- no, I, seriously, I, I thought that I thought that after all that shit and Triple H, you know, feuding, you know, after the whole war with with Orton and then, you know, Orton got hurt. And then, the, you know, that that now, you know, Edge would. But. Um, the fact that we would find out eventually who Edge would face at SummerSlam, uh, that made no sense now. So it's fine. But uh, I thought that was a fine match, Shif. Again, two guys who obviously can adapt to anybody uh, put on a pretty solid match. I'm, I'm just the low man on this. I I don't know if it was. So I watched the Cena and the, the Cena and the Edge match back to back, and I was like, you know, for hard hitting as that was. It just seemed like they were just going through the motions here. I think everyone knew that Vicky and uh, and Elisa were going to get involved at one point, so that like puts it down. And it runs into like the uh, you know Nitro and Raw stuff from the late '90s, where everyone's looking to like the you know the the um the runway just so um, people can come down because they know they're going to get involved. You know the cat fight between Vicky like it was weird seeing Vicky get a pop, which was interesting. Um, but before that, sorry, I like the Edge went for a spear and Triple H hitting with a spine buster. I thought that was very nice. Um, it was very cool. It was a nice little reversal. But then, like, once Edge speared Vicky, I was like, oh, he's going to walk right into the pedigree. And sure enough, I went two and three quarters. Um, I, I know Edge gets a lot of hate. I'm an Edge fan, but I don't know if I ever want to see these two wrestle again. 
Like, that's how much I don't want it anymore. It's so dominated by the storyline. And, you know, like I said, too, it's just been this run and this trend of Edge during the stretch. And I don't know because the Familia stuff has been, like, exciting when they get involved. And there's been a lot of chicanery and, you know, madness at the end of these matches. But, man, like, getting to that point has been a chore. And that was through the whole Undertaker feud. His match with Batista, this match, it feels as every match with Edge this year is the same. And I think everyone thinks of 08 as like an edge year, but honestly this year has hurt his stock with me. Like I'm going to probably move him down my GWE list based on this. Um, But based on this year, like this was his year to really deliver. He's got a ton of matches with really good opponents given a lot of time. And every, every month it's like the first 12 to 14 minutes is boring. And then the last six minutes is hot and it's just been the same every month. So we'll be see, we'll see how SummerSlam holds up. But to this point for me, uh, he's been been a real disappointment here in 07, 08. So uh, let's get to our awards, though. And we'll wrap things up here. I, I think MVP is, is fairly easy here tonight. I'm guessing we're all on board with Chris Jericho getting that uh, reward here. Yes. Yeah. It, I would have put Jericho and Sean, but the, nah, put doing Jericho. the pro, do, well, doing the pro, coming back out and doing the promo while not wiping the blood off. Um, mm-hmm. it was pretty, it was pretty Jericho. So I agree. All right. LVP to me, the biggest loser of the show is Tommy dreamer. He just looked like a goof getting, you know, duped by Colin Delaney. Yeah. <laughs> and lost to dream, uh, Henry in his big, you know, dream match. So yeah, that's pretty rough. Yeah. Very easy right there. Yep. All right. Best match again. Uh, fairly obviously Michael's Jericho. I think worst match. We're all on board with dreamer Henry. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Best moment, uh, to keep going back to the well, but uh, to me, the best moment was Jericho just punching Sean into a bloody pulp. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I agree as well. Kicking okay. his face. Yeah. Surprise of the night, I ended up going with Shelton winning the U.S. title. I uh, go with JBL I, winning. Yeah, I got to go with JBL winning too. Okay. All right, and then final grade, I... I you know, I thought this is a pretty good show yet again during this run. It's it's been consistent across the board. Like you look back at our scores, boom, seven and a half, seven and a half, six, six and a half, seven, six and a half. Like there's a baseline. There's a strong um, consistency to these shows there. They don't overstay their welcome. They're 240 and out the matches, the flow, everything's there. Like nothing drags really in any of these shows. And they still have a lot of big name star power. So I went seven out of ten. I have this about on par with one night stand uh, that was talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, and a nice bounce back from the little dip in Night of Champions, but still just just a strong show for me, Scott. Uh, I've loved uh, 2008 as a year. I look at my grades mm-hmm. from the Rumble to now. Yeah, mine are yeah. yeah eight eight seven six six and a half seven seven and a half. I, it's been yeah. it's been very impressive. I think, and I I think we got to thank Mike, uh, you know, Sean and Jericho mm-hmm. for a decent hunk of that. And you know, the Triple H Orton stuff's been good. Uh, really since Unforgiven, it's really. If you even look back, like from No Mercy on, we've had nothing lower than a six, which is really imp- and most are above six and a half. But, you know, yeah. lowest is six. And that's that's a hell of a streak. We're pretty much almost a year full year of high quality pay-per-views. Yeah, I agree. I uh, I ask, you know, here's an interesting question I didn't think of uh, not to. Uh, um, speaking of Orton, uh, I got to admit, I kind of missed him on the show. I actually mm. missed him. Uh, I wonder if he would have faced 
Yeah, he could have oh. face punk me. Well, he might have still been champion. I'm like, well, no, I guess not. I don't know what they would have done with him. It's interesting. Yeah, he might have had one last match with Triple H, maybe. I don't know, because he would yeah. only had two right at that point. So right, but would Orton have gone to? But would Orton have gone to SmackDown too, or would they have not moved Triple H? Yeah, uh, it's I, interesting. I, yeah, it is interesting. Anyway, uh, I, I enjoyed the show a ton. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to go with seven. It was a solid show. Matches were good. Uh, you know, Sean Jericho was awesome and balances out the shitty um mm-hmm. i feel like every show's been the same we have one fucking awesome match one kind of love match and then everything else is between three and three and a half so that, i think that's where we get everything from everything else looks is just really really good everybody's got their working boots on and have been busting their tail and and now we leave the ruthless aggression era and move on to something uh poopy apparently <laughs> what do you got ship yeah i um I went seven and a half on this. Uh, I know I'm not watching it month to month with you guys, but I'm listening. And it uh, just for that Jericho match, like it, it it's really safe the summer for WWE. WWE. Scott, was your grade again? Seven. All right. Good stuff. Uh, so we'll be back in two weeks and it's going to be a little bittersweet, Scott. It's our final ever Saturday Night's Main event. Yes. Um, you know, we covered all the older ones, of course, when we did our rehash timeline. Came back to 07. We covered a couple over the last year or so. But this will be our final installment of the Science Man event. We'll cover that in two weeks. It is the last one they do. And then in a month from now, we'll be hitting SummerSlam 08. So we'll see how that show holds up mm-hmm. as we start to wrap 08. Chef, I want to thank you for joining us. It was great having thank you here. Sure we'll talk to you soon. Scott, you take care. Everyone stay safe. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Peace. I cried and these eyes have seen a lot of love, but they're never gonna see another one like I have. See you